Andrew Tate bought me tickets to fly to Romania, where there's a rumor online that we hooked up. That didn't happen. Do you think you made any mistakes in that venture? Here, here's conception one. I am what I believe. But as soon as your belief collapses, well then, who are you? At least think it through. The belief in God is not adherence to a set of semantic propositions. What do people do if something they fundamentally believe changes? I don't know who the hell you are, and neither do you. When people say they want to be happy, they actually don't know what they mean. That's why you think. You think so that your stupid thoughts can die instead of you. Okay, let's switch directions. I'm not very fond of the whole online porn thing in any way. I've got all these hoes and look at me. You said Tate's intelligent and what that means as well is that some of the things he says are going to be of value. Now, why he says those, that's a whole different issue. He's genuinely tough. It's better to be a monster than a rabbit in some ways. The more you could embrace the worst enemy, the more radically you could transform for the better. Wait, so, would you talk to him? Well. Dad, welcome to my podcast. Yeah, well, I'm glad to be here. It's good to see you're getting it going again. Yeah, finally. Mm -hmm. But thank you for being the intro back into the online world. I'm looking forward to it, kiddo. So I think it was last week I saw a video going around of you describing the worst breakfast you've ever had. Your breakfast Oh, yeah, hell. that's a funny one. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And that has millions of views. And it reminded me of going to the restaurant near our house when we were kids. And I remember one time you didn't like your breakfast mm -hmm. and you got up and taught the cook how to cook. So I thought mm -hmm. we could open with why, why on did earth you did that. Why did that amuse you? Because a normal person would quietly complain about their breakfast with other people at the table and then eat most of it out of guilt and then not come back. And you did not do that. Okay, so, yeah, so this is a little restaurant, a little diner by our house. Yeah, cost. And I knew the owner, and I liked her, and I liked going there for breakfast. I used to bring my graduate students there, and we'd have breakfast there. Yeah. And we had meetings that were very productive, and that breakfast was excellent. And so what does that mean? It means that the potatoes were fresh, and that they were cooked crispy and golden, and not brown and soggy and mm -hmm. horrible and old and sometimes rotten because you can do all those if you really want to. And the orange juice was like made out of oranges instead of whatever the hell they fed <laughs> astronauts in 1957. And uh, the coffee was fresh and the bacon was actually made out of pork instead of whatever the hell you make bacon out of when you don't have a pig. <laughs> and uh, it was good and so I liked coming there. And I liked the woman, she's hardworking immigrant woman and she ran a good restaurant, it was very uh, welcoming and they had a great cook and then they brought in this new guy and it was like second-rate and I thought It doesn't have to be second-rate He maybe he's lazy in which case he should go or maybe he just doesn't know what the hell he's doing And I thought well, I don't want to be pissed off about this and never come back and grumble about it I'd rather come here and have a good breakfast so I thought well and I worked as a short-order cook for years and knew the difference between how to cook, you know hash browns properly and improperly and I went in and told him like what was wrong in detail why this didn't work and what he could do instead and you know he responded positively because I wasn't going in there giving him hell I was doing exactly what I just told you it's like I wanted to go to this restaurant it was all set up I liked the woman and he might as well do it right and so that's what I did I thought that was amusing I thought you? it was really funny did breakfast and breakfast, anxiety provoking breakfast improved very dramatically yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
it's funny. Yeah, so there was no downside to that too, you know, because you go out to a place and you don't get treated well, it just pisses you off and then you don't say anything because you're so polite. And you know, it's understandable <laughs> to some degree, but it's not helpful because then you go away and you're irritated because you didn't get what you bargained for and then you don't go back. And if that happens to a small business, it doesn't have to happen that often and people just don't go. Mm -hmm. And then if the, you know, maybe the owner doesn't even know. And so then their business vanishes out from underneath them and that's not helpful. You know, if he would have got all uppity and squawky about it, that wouldn't have gone well, but I wasn't being mean. And, you know, and I wasn't trying to like parade my knowledge of hash browns around. I just wanted to keep going to that diner. <laughs> so yeah, all right. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's a little bit funny. It, yeah, I guess it's a little bit funny, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I thought we should... Uh, no, the other thing about that too is like if you're at a restaurant and you have good service, it's really helpful to tell the people what they did right in detail. And this is a good thing to know in your life in general. Like if you go somewhere and people go a bit out of their way to make it go well for you, and you tell them what they did in detail and you thank them for it, they're so happy you can't believe it. And then they're way more likely to do that again in the future because there isn't anything... B.F. Skinner figured this out. A. Skinner taught... Skinner could teach an animal to do anything. Skinner taught rats to dance and to yeah. climb ladders and to peck on photographs to guide missiles and that was pigeons and Oh wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Skinner That's could cool. teach animals to do anything. Terrifying, and he said but... you can teach an animal using threat, so that produces anxiety. You can use punishment, like electric shock, minor electric shock, the behaviorists would do that, which isn't as harsh as it sounds because it's, you know, minor irritant essentially. Or you can use reward. Now, reward is hard to use, eh? Because if you're going to teach an animal by using reward, you have to watch them, and then you have to wait till you see them do something that you want them to repeat, and then you have to reward them right there and then. So you have to be at very, very attentive to use reward. And so often people don't use reward in their lives because they don't pay enough attention, or maybe they're afraid to actually communicate what they want. But it's unbelievably powerful. And so if you watch your kids, or your wife, your friends, and I don't mean to do this manipulatively because that's stupid, but if they do something that you would like to see repeated and you notice it, you think, oh, that went real well. You went out of your way, you stepped up, you improved your performance. Even if it's just a minor improvement sort of on the edge, if you identify that, describe it in detail and call it out, it, it's so motivating to, for people, you just can't believe it. You can just call out the best in people constantly by doing that. And you can do it to yourself too, you know. If you notice that you've made a little progress forward, instead of bitching at yourself about how you're slightly less useless than you once were, you know, and sort of damn with faint praise, you can notice that you took a step, however small, in the right direction and, you know, treat yourself with a bit of appreciation and consequence. It's one of the things you teach people if you're a behavioral psychologist is to teach them how to reward themselves for taking incremental steps towards their desired goal. Yeah. Do you, do you think that works for people across the board or do you think some people react more to punishment? No, it's, it's some people don't react at all to punishment. Like Julian, your brother was a good example of that. Is he was just too ornery and tough to, to react. Really, he didn't react well to punishment. We used to use time out on him because you can use time out on kids. He was way more responsive to reward. Um, you were more sensitive to punishment in that with you when you were a little kid, really all I had to do was 
you know, point my finger at you and look, and you'd stop, Julia. And that was like, that was just an invitation to tango for him. So, but reward, fundamentally. <laughs> reward. You want to use threat and punishment sparingly, very, very sparingly. You know, you bring out the big guns only when necessary, and, but reward is, it's so useful. And, but it requires careful, focal attention, you know. I think Scarlett's like that. She hardly needs, like, if you just look at her sideways when she's done something wrong, she cries. Right. Yeah. Right, right. But not in, like, a depressed way, you know, what did I do wrong, oh my gosh. Yeah, well, that cry, so the way your nervous system works, basically, this is one of the ways you learn, is that imagine that there's a sequence of activation of neurons in a, in a pattern, like, like a musical pattern, right? And so whenever you're manifesting a given behavior, there's a symphony of neurons that are firing that accompany that or that precede it. Now, if the symphony of neural pattern produces a desired outcome, then that produces a release of dopamine. And the dopamine does two things. Is one, it makes you feel good. Mm -hmm. And the second is that it makes the neurons that were most recently active grow the connections between them and strengthen sort of in proportion to how like the, the, the farther back in time they were activated the less dopamine they're flooded by so any behavioral pattern neural pattern that's resulted in a positive consequence gets bathed in dopamine and then strengthens it's like the weight strengthening in a large language model it's the same thing and so if you reward people for um, performing properly, then what they did is reinforced by the dopamine as well as rewarded. So the reinforcement is the growth and the reward is the subjective feeling. Um, and if you punish them for it, we don't exactly know how punishment works neurologically, or at least I don't know, but it weakens the connections and kills the patterns. And I think that the feeling of negative emotion that is associated with failure, let's say, is actually a signal of the death of part of you, right? The impending death of weakening like, yeah, yeah. of something. Yeah, kind of so, feels like that. Mm -hmm. if you're well, doing it's part something. of you that's dying yeah. or weakening, right? Like it, so it has to give yeah. up, and it's painful, right? Yeah. And that, that's why a radical personality transformation. You know, if you fail dreadfully, so imagine you fail in a marriage, let's say, because it's betrayed. The what you failed at is a pattern that's co-activated with almost everything you do, right? Because if you're married to someone, the fact that you're married married is a predicate of everything that you're involved in, the way you look at the world, the way you think about yourself, the way you conduct yourself. And then when that collapses, all of that is punished, all of it. And so, well, that's enough of a death. You know, if you're like 75 years old and your wife dies, there's a real high probability you'll die in the next year. It just takes you out. You know, and even if it doesn't, if you're younger, a big party is going to die. And that's very, very painful. That grief and that reconstitution, that's all a partial death. And it can kill you, right? It can be so stressful that you just die. But if you don't, a lot of you has to die. And then, hypothetically, you know, reemerge. It takes a long time for the death, like a year, and a long time for the reemergence. Sometimes you don't reemerge either. You just end up, yeah. you know, three quarters dead. And that's what happens with ideological beliefs too, right? Why people get stuck in it. Because in order to change your frame of thought, a piece of you has to die. Yeah, well, not. it's worse than that. A piece of you has to die, and it might be a lot of you. 
but also when that piece dies, it's not like it's replaced immediately by a new functional piece. You lose the- Just chaos. That's right, so that's the desert. We just released this Exodus seminar, right? And one of the things that happens to the Israelites, once they leave the tyranny of Egypt, they end up lost in the desert. Of course, that's part of the mystery of the story. It's like, it's not a very big desert that, where they're lost. It wouldn't take 40 years to walk across it. It's three generations. But what happens is that in the aftermath of the collapse of a tyrannical belief system, well, the tyranny disappears, but then you're lost. And it's not obvious at all that being lost is preferable to being in the tyranny. And that's why people will develop nostalgia for the tyranny. It's also why people won't let go of their beliefs. It's like, imagine you stubbornly stick to a counterproductive pattern of behavior, and you even know it's counterproductive, but you won't let it go. You think, well, why would you be so damn daft not to let go of something that you know is hurting you? And the answer is, well, better the devil you know than the desert you don't. Right, it's a really big problem. And in the Exodus story, there's an emphasis. It's like, it might, the desert period, it might extend past your lifetime. Ugh. Right, right. Well, you know, if a whole, if a whole tyrannical society collapses, yeah. there's no reason to assume that the society is gonna regenerate within the span of your life. You know, you might just be the cohort that's cast into the desert. That happened in Russia, in the Soviet Union after it collapsed. So if you were like 45 or older, in 1989, or 50, let's say, you're just screwed, right? Because everything that you knew collapsed, and you're 50, you know, you're near retirement. You're gonna start again? Well, you're, you're three-fifths done, or four-fifths done. There's no, lots of people can't start again, or won't, even if they're 30. Hey guys, did you know that dad did research into hangover cures in his 20s while he was at McGill? He told me that after I told him I'd found a supplement that drastically improves hangovers and gave it out to his friends at one of his parties. He doesn't drink at all anymore. I do on occasion, however. After Party is my pure high-dose filler-free supplement available at fullerhealth.com. It's composed of high-dose dihydromyristin, which is incredibly effective in breaking down the toxic byproduct of alcohol called acetaldehyde. Acetaldehyde is what poisons you and causes organ and brain damage and hangovers when you drink. There are a ton of peer-reviewed articles available at fullerhealth.com that I've linked for the nerds out there. If you want to read up on the extract we're using, it's very interesting. I drink vodka sodas on occasion, not often, but I do sometimes, and I can't afford to be useless the next day. I hate it. I figure this reduces my hangover by about 75%. It's a really clean supplement. It reduces jitteriness with a hangover and leaves you feeling calm and clearer, reduces nausea, headaches, etc. There's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so no risk, and you take three pills before bed, after drinking, and two in the morning. There's also evidence that if you take it before drinking, you'll actually drink less. There are 24 servings in this massive bottle, which adds up to about $2.50 per avoided hangover. We made this as pure and healthy as possible with third-party testing, an amber glass bottle, metal lids, etc. Because of my autoimmune issues and reactions to excipients and fillers and pills, which is crazy, but if you drink, drink wisely. Save your body and brain as much as you can if you choose to poison it with alcohol, and you can use code MP for 15% off. We're gonna be rolling out more supplements soon, so you can sign up to be notified at fullerhealth.com, which is linked in the comments. MP for 15% off, and I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Okay, so from my experience of like belief systems falling, and I think my first belief system that fell was 
like full-blown trust in the medical system because of what happened to me. And when that fell, I've talked about this a bit, it impacted almost every part of my life where I was like, I believed that, you know, I believed that that was how I was going to get better. It didn't make me better. Something else outside of that got me better, which is the diet that we're on, which yeah, was or ridiculous. Yeah, exploratory capacity. Yes, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that was the first belief system that fell, and then yeah. I lost trust in everything. Yeah, like, okay, if that so was wrong, is the well, government wrong? Well, what, that, what else is wrong? This is something that Nietzsche pointed out with regards to the psychological consequences of, of European colonialism on Europe. So he said, okay, imagine Europe is uh, Christendom, all things considered, when, when the European expansion started. Okay, now the Europeans go out into the world, and there's some arguments within Christendom about which branch of Christianity should rule, you know, and there's doubters, yeah, but, yeah. but basically, as far as the Europeans were concerned, the cosmos was structured according to Judeo-Christian precepts. It was just the assumption network. Okay, so now the Europeans go out in the world. And they find out that there's a lot of different belief systems, equally well-developed, or arguably equally well-developed, apparently predicated on different axiomatic systems. Okay, so now that brings uh, up weird. doubt. Yeah. So the doubt is, well, you know, the uh, Japanese, Chinese, they seem to be doing pretty well, and they're not, or better even in some regards. I think you could argue that when the Europeans hit Japan, that the Japanese had attained a higher level of... of sophisticated civilization in many ways. They were certainly well advanced on the hygienic front, for example. Yeah. And so that's the first doubt. The first doubt is, uh-oh, there's a bunch of belief systems. But then Nietzsche pointed out, but then there's a secondary doubt, which is once you realize that any, that a, that a belief system per se, especially a relatively core one, can collapse, that raises not only the specter of which belief system is correct, but another specter, which is, well, what makes you think any belief system yeah. is justifiable? Yeah, yeah. Right, and that's the nihilist trap. That, it's like, uh, well, everything is meaningless. Right, and, you know, and that's a hard trap to get out of, and we're certainly still... Nietzsche knew that after the death of God, which was something he regarded as really the ultimate catastrophe, the ultimate murder, that two things were most likely to happen. One would be a descent into a kind of counterproductive nihilism, the loss of all values, that's how he construed it, and all the psychological disorientation that goes along with that, and the other would be a radical turn towards a replacement totalitarian certainty, which he believed and said would likely come from the radical left in the form of something approximating communism. He nailed that like 1850. <laughs> Stunning. And Dostoevsky knew exactly the same thing. They both got it exactly right. And so, and that is exactly what happened. So, yeah, so... And then there's another way of thinking about it, too, is that you look at the world through a hierarchy of, of presuppositions, of axioms. Yeah. So, like, if you're married, one of the axioms is, and this would be the definition of marriage, one of the axioms of marriage is pro likely trust on the interpersonal communication front. Like, you have, to, you have to assume that your partner is revealing to you what they are. And then sexual fidelity would be the other, and those are obviously integrally associated. But those are the two, you could argue, those are the two funda fundamental pillars. Okay, so everything else in the marriage, and that would be your self-conception, your conception of your future, the past, your partner, other people, all of them depend on the integrity of those axioms. And so if any, either of those axioms are 
uh, um, um, challenged, so your partner lies to you in some fundamental way or betrays you on the sexual front, the whole edifice tumbles down. Yeah. Right. And that. Yeah. And okay. And so what happens technically there is that edifice gives you security because things are defined, and so they're not all the look. If you can't trust someone, you don't know who the hell they are, mm -hmm. right? And when you're facing someone and you don't know who they are, they could be anyone. Yeah. Like they could be Anybody. Mother Teresa or yeah. Ted Bundy. Right, that's a big range, okay? So someone you can't trust is a nightmare of entropy. And the reason they're a nightmare of entropy is because you don't know which direction to take. Like they're a multitude of potent, they're an infinite multitude of potential directions, okay? You, the systems within you that signal anxiety signal the emergence of that multitude of pathways. It's like, you know, you, you, I've seen this in interviews I've had. It's like, you know, I thought they were good faith interviews and huh. then I discovered that I was talking Never to a snake. Never that. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. It's <laughs> like, oh, I see. You're not who you claim to be and whatever's happening here isn't what I thought. Yeah. What's going on? And the answer is God only <laughs> knows, right? So anxiety signals that. Anxiety comes up and says, you thought you were here in the walled garden, but it turns out that you're in chaos. And then because you don't know how difficult it will get, be to get out of the chaos and reestablish order, your brain says, warning, warning, multiple pathways ahead, multiple indeterminate pathways ahead. That equates to incalculable expense of energy and time probable, right? And so you get anxious, that's, and that's what freezes you. It's, you don't know which direction to go, you turn to stone. So when, when, the, when the mythological hero faces the, the terrible, chaotic feminine, let's say, with the head of snakes, it's a, it's a predator, he freezes. And the reason for that is, well, if you don't know yeah. what direction to go, how about you don't move? Right, that's anxiety. It's a signal of emergent entropy. And entropy can tear you apart, right? It's complete disorder. So, yeah. mm. Okay, so I have like four or five questions from that whole thing that just happened. But I think, I think the first one, what do people do if something they fundamentally believed changes and they're left in this state of what's even stable in my life? Like, where do you start when yeah, you're, okay, you're frozen? Okay. okay, so back to the book of Exodus. This is so cool. Jonathan Pagel explained this to, to all of us. And like, I don't think any of us ever recovered after he explained it because it's so bloody brilliant. So the Israelites are out in the desert, right? They're lost and they have the habits of slaves so they don't know what they're doing. And they're all bitchy and they're whining about having the tyranny back and they're bitching about Moses and they're worshiping like golden calves and they're fighting with each other. Yeah. It's just like chaos. So they don't know where to go. And so God appears to them. And God appears as a pillar of light at night, so it's a fire, and a pillar of darkness during the day. And so Pajot said, that's the same thing as the Taoist yin and yang. It's the same idea. So what does it mean? Well, the Taoist, in the Taoist worldview, reality itself, so that's experiential reality, is made out of the balance between chaos and order, okay? Now, order is where you are when things are going the way you want them to go. That's order. And chaos is where you don't know what the hell's going on. So chaos is also possibility, right? And the future is chaos, and novelty is chaos. Now, in the Taoist worldview, the little serpent, because it's a serpent, that, that's the white serpent, their head to head, has a black dot in it. It's because order can turn into chaos at the drop of a hat. Yeah. And the black serpent has a white dot in it because chaos can reveal a new order. And that's the interplay of reality. 
the interplay between the unknown and the known. Now, when you're guided by that which grips your interest optimally, right? So you're attentive because you're interested in something, you're focused on it. What it means is that chaos and order are balanced for you in a way that doesn't flood you too much, so you're not too terrified, but that isn't so predictable that nothing, no transformation is taking place yeah. in front of Now, you might think, well, what I want to be is stable. And the answer, that's wrong. You don't want to be stable. You want to be stable and improving, right? Okay, so something will beckon to you as compelling and interesting if it's exactly on the frontier between chaos and order that will move your development forward, right? And when that happens, you're engaged. That's the instinct of meaning. That's how God manifests himself to the Israelites in the desert. It's that the thing that grips your attention, it's like the, the, snit, the snitch that that Harry Potter chases and yeah. wins the game? Yeah. You know, that's the thing that dances and grabs your attention. And so you could think of God in the story of Exodus as that which calls to you. And you see a precursor of that in Exodus because Moses leaves Egypt at one point. He kills a, um, an Egyptian who has beaten up an Israelite. And he kills him. And then the word gets around and he's afraid the Pharaoh's going to kill him. So he leaves and he goes to this land. Um, Midia, I think it's Midia. His father-in-law is a Midianite priest. So I think it's Midia, but, but the people who live there are Midianites anyways. He marries a, one of the priest's daughters and he settles into their household. And like he's very valued there because he rescued the girls, including the one he married from these like thugs at a well. And they're pretty happy with Moses. Yeah. And now he's a shepherd and he's, and, and a shepherd is a guide and a leader, right? That's what a shepherd does, and a shepherd protects the weak, because that's also what a shepherd does. And remember, in the Middle East, at this time, there's lions and wolves, and like, you're, you're not some trivial dude if you're a shepherd, because you're out there alone, and then where there's predators, and you're, you know, taking care of the vulnerable. So food. that's, that's the leader. Yeah, 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 that's the leader, right? That's why the shepherd is a leader figure in, in the Old Testament. You have a rod that, you move the sheep with and fight off the predators, and that's Moses, and he's having a perfectly fine time. He doesn't even want to go back to Egypt. And he goes, it actually happens near Mount Sinai, he encounters a burning bush. And so Moses is going about his business, and all of a sudden something attracts his attention. And he, and he decides to go off his path, right, so the path of normality, to attend to this thing that captures his interest. And it's not like a burning forest, it's just something that glitters, right? It's a call. And so Moses goes to investigate. And as he approaches it, he realizes that it's a, a burning bush. And so what does that mean? Well, a tree is a symbol of life, like the tree of life, right? The tree is a symbol of life because, well, trees are alive, obviously. But that branching complexity is sort of emblematic of life. And a burning tree is being and becoming at the same time because fire is transformation. And so the burning bush is a symbol of being and becoming simultaneously, right? And so Moses investigates this. And as he investigates it more deeply, here's a voice, and the voice says, you're starting to tread on sacred ground. And so he takes off his shoes and continues to investigate. And that's when God himself reveals himself to Moses and then really transforms him into a rev revelatory leader. And the idea there is it's such an amazing idea, and I think it's absolutely right, is that you know, you're going to be walking down your pathway in life, and maybe you're perfectly content. 
and something is going to glitter and gleam in the, in the periphery, capture your interest, right? And it's partly you, because it's you that's interesting, interested, but it's partly the world calling to you because you don't get to say what makes you interested, right? It, it sort of happens to you. Yeah. It's a yeah. synchronicity, like it's a place where the narrative and the objective touch. And so if you decide to go off your pathway and investigate what interests you, and you investigate it enough, you go deeper and deeper and deeper. And if you go deep enough, you get on sacred ground. And that's where you're getting so deep that you're starting to study that which everything depends on. And then if you continue to study, you'll get right to the bottom of things itself. That's Moses' encounter with the divine. And if you do that, you will be a leader, right? And so that's, and so you say, well, what guides you when you're lost? Well, the manifestation of intrinsic meaning guides you when you're lost. You can hear that in music, like music plays out the balance between chaos and order properly. Yeah. And yeah. it sort of tells you what is intrinsically meaningful and, and, uh, and, and necessary and beautiful and true, all of that. And so, and it's so cool because it works out neurologically, really. Like, it is the case that you advance developmentally on the edge of chaos, right? Because you have to push yourself to advance. Yeah. That's what you do when you play. Like if, if you're playing one-on-one -on -one basketball with someone, you don't want to be six foot four and play with your like four foot two nephew and just stomp him to death. And you think, well, why not? Because you could beat the little bastard nonstop. <laughs> it's like I'm the victor. You don't want that, right? You want to find someone who can push you. Maybe you want to play with someone who's slightly better than you. Now, why? Because it's harder to win. And the answer is, well, the win means that you're developing. That's the meta win. And you, you obtain the meta win on the border of chaos. And that's all the place where the hero operates. And that's where you find the dragon and all of that. It's exactly the same thing. And meaning, the instinct of meaning signifies that developmental edge. And the, the constant mythological insistence is that God is to be found at the core of what makes itself manifest as meaning. And that's a definition, you know, and say, well, people think, well, you know, I don't believe in God. It's like, God, it, the belief in God is not adherence to a set of semantic propositions. That's just not how it works. It's not like, it's not like reading a set of descriptors and saying, I, you know, I, I concur. It's not that at all. It's being guided by, well, it's being guided by the spirit of truth. That's one way of thinking about it. Guided by the spirit of adventure. That's another way of thinking about it. And it, it's faith in meaning, it's faith in truth. Those aren't propositional ideas. And they, they, they fit the neurology perfectly because the instinct of meaning manifests itself on the edge of development. That's how your brain's set up. So if you're floating around in chaos because yeah. one of your belief systems failed, whether that's your job or your belief in the medical system or your relationship or something like that, your suggestion is, wait for something meaningful to appear because it'll appear well, and then or, pursue it. Or watch. Like one of the things you do with people who are depressed, if you're a behavioral therapist, is you say, okay, let's have you track your mood for the next two weeks. Yeah. Like you're going to think because you're depressed. It's like, how do you feel? Two out of ten. Win. Always. It's like, no, not always. If you track your mood, you'll find that even if you're severely depressed, you'll vary, say, between zero and four out of ten. Okay, so now it might be that you find, this is very common, you find that even though you don't want to see your friends, if you're with them, you're at four. Okay, 
And, and then maybe there'll be some other things. If I listen to music, if I'm painting, if I'm working out, if I'm building a, you know, a shelf or whatever, there'll be different things that people find compelling. Um, my mood lifts. And here's some other things I'm doing where I'm at zero. Yeah. Okay. Let's start doing fewer of the zero things and more of the four things and see how far we can go. And then maybe you practice that for a month and now you're doing some six out of 10 things. Like there'll be, there'll be domains of your life that make themselves manifest as more able to chase away the darkness. And you need to discover what those are. And you have to be humble, which is you don't know because what do you know about yourself? The things that you find meaningful that make themselves manifest as meaningful, you might not want to even admit. Like maybe you have yeah. a woman who's hell-bent on her career for ideological reasons, but if you get her to track her mood, she's far happier when she's with her kids. Or the reverse, right? You might have a woman who um, would like to believe that having her children is enough, but if you track her mood, you find that if she isn't out pursuing her career 30% of the time, she's devastated and it's it's an empirical you call this in behavioral therapy you call this collaborative empiricism and so the idea is well i don't know who the hell you are and neither do you so how about we watch we watch and that's humility it's right like i don't know i don't know and you, and you have to be brought to your knees to watch that seriously well and so then you can find and then you know there's a reliable pattern to the things that make your life meaningful so, and this is one of the things I've talked to my audiences a lot about, is that there are, so you might say, well, I want to be happy. And people say that all the time, and they don't even know what the hell they mean when they say that. What they actually mean is that they don't want to suffer too much. Yeah. But, but, they, don't, but they don't say, I don't, I don't want to be unhappy. They say, I want to be happy. But happiness is incentive reward, and it only occurs sporadically when you're pursuing a goal. And, Happiness has its dangers, too, because it makes you impulsive. And when people say they want to be happy, they actually don't know what they mean. And what they really mean, what they really mean is something like, I want to have a meaning that will sustain me even through catastrophe. And that's not happiness, because when you're in a catastrophe, which you will be, or maybe always are, yeah. you're not going to be happy. Okay, so what do people, where do people find meaning? And my conclusion, fundamentally, it's not mine, this is the this fundamental axiom of Western civilization, is you find true meaning in voluntary self-sacrifice, right? So it's like, you know, you, you have a great relationship with your kids, you're a mother. Well, it means you've given up yourself to a large degree to foster that relationship. Same with your relationship with your partner. Like, it's not self-martyrdom, but it's in that responsible shouldering of the virtues of the relationship that the meaning arises. And the most reliable source of meaning is responsible, responsible self-sacrificial conduct. And so here's something very cool. I went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre with Jonathan Paggio. It's in Jerusalem, and it was the first church. Now, it's hypothetically situated on the place where Christ hung himself on the cross. It was hung on the cross. And so what does that mean? Well, at minimum, psychologically, it means that the community is founded on the principle of voluntary self-sacrifice. That's what it means. And so you have the cross at the center of the church, and that's the, place, that's the place of the altar. That's the place of sacrificial offering. Then you have the church surrounding that. Then you have the town surrounding that. And then the community itself, and this was the pattern for European towns for centuries, 
the state surrounding that, but the thing at the middle was responsible voluntary self-sacrifice towards a higher good, right? And it took people thousands of years to delineate out that vision. You know, you see it developing through the Old Testament, but it's fully realized in many ways in the New Testament with the idea that you have to bear the weight of death voluntarily and also the weight of hell, of, of malevolence. You have, to, you have to take that on to yourself. And in doing so, you transcend it. In, in doing so, you also act out the foundation of community itself. And of course that's true, because if I'm going to be in a community, I have to give up myself, like my short-term, merely me-focused self. Obviously, that's the definition of community. You know, if it's me first, always, there's no community. So, to me, these things, they've started to become almost truisms. It's like, well, obviously, community, the, the stable, healthy community is predicated on voluntary self-sacrifice. Like, well, what, how else could it be? No sacrifice? No, that's not going to get you anywhere. The sacrifice of other people? Well, that's a little convenient for you. Plus, the other people don't exactly appreciate it. And so, you know, if you're a good mother, there's... It's so much easier that way. Well, though. right. It is in the short term. Yeah. But that's the other thing. It's actually not easier. So psychopaths do that all the time. They sacrifice other people to their own whims at the drop of a hat. So what happens to psychopaths? Well, they end up in prison. They fail to learn from experience. They have to wander from town to town. Like, they end up in hell. It doesn't work, because people catch on, you know, usually. And then, then there's hell to pay, like literally, literally. So there isn't an alternative. And you know, you might think, well, who the hell wants the path of voluntary self-sacrifice? Like, fair enough, you know, with the cross and hell, it doesn't exactly sound like a picnic. But if you know that the alternative is hell, then you think, well, you know. Yeah. It, it also, at least from what I've gone through, it seems to get easier. Like the first time it happens to you, or a belief system falls and you're in chaos, it's pretty horrible for quite a while. Um, but then you kind of get used to it. That's what I found anyway. Yeah. So then the next thing that happens, well, maybe it's worse than the first thing mm -hmm. that happens. Uh, but then each dramatic thing that happens after that, it's like, oh, you know what? I already did this once right. and I survived. And then I think you can take See, on then, more risk. Well, then you also have a different conception of what you are because yeah. here, here's conception one. I am what I believe. Okay, that's great, as long as it's working, but as soon as your belief collapses, well then, who are you? And then the next conclusion is, I'm whatever is left over when my belief system collapses. And that's the depressive, nihilistic state. It's like, well, you know, everything's up in the air, and life is fundamentally misery, and I'm this disoriented thing, and that's the essential nature of being. You know, stable state, collapse into chaos. I'm the stable state, no, I'm chaos. No, well then, order reemerges from chaos, and now you think, well, I'm the new order. And that, that's the fervor of a convert, but then it collapses. And then you do that five times, and you think, oh, I see, I'm the thing that does this. <laughs> right, that's right, that's right, that's Sisyphus. It's the voluntary acceptance of the fate of Sisyphus. You're the thing that's rolling the stone up the mountain, and then it rolls back down, but it's a different mountain each time and maybe each peak is higher, right? And so then you're the thing that transforms. That's why in the Judeo-Christian ethos, in the Judeo-Christian narrative world, 
your soul is identified with the dying and resurrecting Savior because that's, you're the thing that goes through this process of purification by repeated deaths and rebirths, right? And so then you're the thing that withstands the repeated deaths and rebirths in the favor of the emergence of a higher, higher order, you know? And, and, the, and the pathway of that, that's Jacob's Ladder. That's the pathway to paradise. That's the hero's path. That's why Jung said that Christ was a symbol of the self. Because that core self isn't what you believe, and it's not the catastrophe that ensues when belief disintegrates. It's the process by which you're honed in fire by repeatedly encountering, you know, what's salutary and transforming. And then if you identify with that, the more you identify with that, the more you can say, bring it on. Yeah. Right? And the ultimate extent of that is probably something like embracing your enemy. And you think, well, how the hell can I do that? It's like, here's a hypothesis. The more you could embrace the worst enemy, the more radically you could transform for the better. Right? Because the worst enemy is going to bring everything that could possibly take you out against you. Worst enemy in an idea way or as a person? E either way. Either way. Whatever knocks you off your feet. Yeah, Now you okay. think, well, something's coming to knock me off my feet. You might think, well... Maybe, maybe I could use what knocks me off my feet to shed what's most useless about me. And, you know, and we've seen this. We've seen this in our family, you know, practically speaking, because one of the things we did learn was that just because the attack looked like a catastrophe doesn't mean that it isn't the best thing that could have possibly happened, even though you might not see that for like two years. <laughs> Painful right? two years, yeah. Right, right. And then, of course, it depends on how you dance with it, too. You know, I mean, when we... When I was, one of the most shocking things that happened to me when I was still ill was to be portrayed in the Marvel series as yeah. Red Skull, right? I mean, it just knocked me off my feet. I couldn't believe it. It was so insanely surreal and over the top. And we didn't know what the hell to do about that. Hilarious. Also yeah. hilarious. Well, <laughs> I thought right. you might have taken a little bit of time to get there. Well, by, by that time sick it had happened. Yeah, and I was sick too. Yeah. By that time it had happened enough so that it wasn't. Yeah. But it did. It really, literally, when, it, when I first saw it, 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 I literally, I almost fell over. It shook me, like it shook me so badly because I just couldn't believe it was happening. But then we turned it into a joke, really, and put a, you know, we made that lobster yeah. symbol. Some ha Czech kid, it was lobster. a Czech kid, right, made that yeah. lobster out of the Hydra image. Yeah. We made that tell the truth and make your bed, yeah. like evil logo, and yeah. then ran a charity venture for, well, for about a year, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and so that worked, you know, and that's a weird thing because th that worked out real well. And th that was an interest, really interesting example because it was, it was as profound a reputational blow in some ways as could be mustered, right? It's like to be pilloried as a Nazi is one thing, but like to be pilloried as the source of all, the magical source of all Nazis, that's a whole different level of conceptualization. And you think, well you know, how could that be turned to something good? And that's a complicated question, but that doesn't mean it couldn't be. So- Did, did you know Elvis's manager um, had all the I hate Elvis merch? That's what you do. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's well, that it. was something I joked about early. You know, one of the, the first time I went on Joe Rogan, I made this, you know, horrible joke that I'd figured out how to monetize social justice yeah. warriors. And, you know, all the people who think that I'm an evil capitalist thought, which I am, thought, well, there's just evidence that he's an evil capitalist. But it was also a joke. 
But it was also true. It's like, okay, like you guys, you hate capitalism. And so you're going to use your woke nonsense to go after people's reputation. It's like, what's the funniest thing that can be done with that? And the, clearly the funniest thing to do with that is to monetize it. And so we've done that a lot. So the last time I was in Berlin, we accidentally rented a theater that was right in the middle of the communist district. Hmm. And all the communists thought that was just Perfect. a provocation, and, but it wasn't. It was just ignorance. And we didn't know that that was like communist central in, I didn't, in I didn't Berlin. I didn't know they had that area in Berlin. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, so, so silly us, but they did. And so we got a couple hundred protesters, which was the best the protesters had mustered on our last tour. Because usually it was like six bedraggled individuals, you know, with their signs protesting something. They didn't even purport to understand it, you know, after a big show in the press about how there would be thousands of yeah. them. And so, but Berlin, they managed a pretty decent uh, contingent. But the police there are pretty used to handling them, and it's like a little dance. They all know how to do it. So we went out and filmed them, and then used that as a promo for the rest of the tour. Because it's like, what else are you going to do about it? You know, it's, you might as well do something comical and, and hypothetically productive and satirical at the same time. And so... I want credit for that. Yeah, that was, I think that was your... I, well, I think the... I don't remember how much of the... Red Skull charity venture was also, that was a collaborative venture between the two of us. Did you find the Czech kid? Yeah, on, on Twitter. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, so. He was, he was great. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we always had a relationship, well, and this was true in our household in general, like, it, there was always, like, sit, satire and play. We right? had to. Yeah, well, yeah, there was that too. But, but it wasn't just, you know, the friends that I had, and you know this, the friends that I had when I was a kid, and you've met a lot of them, all we ever did was joke. It was just continual joking. The friendships I had for almost all my life were it's all competitive humor. And so we did the same thing in our household. Your mom figured you out about six years ago. It took her a long time. She said, I don't know what to make Michaela. She said, everything Michaela says is a joke. It's like, really? It's like, yes, yes, just listen. And then your mom figured that out, and she thought, oh, well, you know, she kind of knew. It wasn't like she was completely out of the loop on that front. I think it was but then like it was 17. Even, it was even worse for your mom because she realized that, you know, she had no idea how much like you she is. She's like, Michaela, you know, she's kind of rough. I say, like, Tammy, you know, she's exactly like you. She's, no, I'm not really like that. It's like, yeah, you're exactly like that. You're exactly like that. Actually, I think once she finally really swallowed that, she thought that was a pretty good compliment, all things considered. Ah, that's nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's switch directions. Hey, everyone. As you may know, recently I got quite ill from living in a house with mold behind the drywall and in the HVACs, which is why I had to pause the podcast for like six months and recover my brain. But sauning has been something that's been hugely beneficial for recovering from that. I've been sauning for years to reduce symptoms of autoimmunity and anxiety, depression, etc., and if I eat something wrong that gives me an autoimmune flare-up, I sauna. There's so much evidence that is good for health and longevity by helping your body detox faster amongst other benefits. Bond Charge is a holistic wellness brand that has products ranging from blue light glasses to red light therapy. All their stuff is good, but their sauna blanket is my favorite. It works by helping you detox and sweat. It raises your heart rate like exercise so it burns calories. It's super easy to set up and clean, and you can travel with it, which is huge for me. Seems to improve my mood by about 30% after use, which is significant. Free shipping, easy returns and exchanges, 30-day trial, 12 months warranty, all that good stuff. You can go to bondcharge.com MP 
and use coupon code MP to save 15%. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com slash MP and use code MP to save 15%. Uh, but that was fascinating. I actually kept up with that whole thing, which is, which is great. But I think that's also from years of experience of trauma and then getting through it. Yeah. And, then, and now I've realized when bad things happen, and I have this belief that's like firmly ingrained in me that when my life is going really well and then suddenly, oh, everything's upside down again, mm-hmm. it's a period of time and I'm going to end up in a better place on the other side and it is gonna end. And I believe that. So when bad things happen now, I go, oh, well, I hope this isn't a year and a half of bad things, but I'm sure there's something here that I need to learn, unfortunately, um, which is a better state of being than I'm in the middle of a catastrophe and it's never gonna go away and this is my life forever, which I don't believe anymore. The book of Job outlines that, right? Because it's a terrible book. Oh, yeah. Because God makes a bet with Satan, actually, the reverse. Yeah. And Satan, you know, Job's a good guy. And Satan says, yeah, yeah, I bet I can take him out. And God says, no, I don't think you can. He's a good guy. I don't think, do your worst. Yeah. You know, do your worst. Have Adam, man. And, you know, people read that, the, like the kind of shallow atheist materialist types read that. And they think, God's so reprehensible. It's like, have you lived? You know, you don't think there's anything reprehensible about life? You don't think like horrible, unfair things are going to be hurled your way? And that that has to be incorporated into your idea of the absolute? It's like, definitely that's coming. So let, how about you don't be so naive? You know, on the one hand, the critics of those stories say, well, you know, religion is a defense against death anxiety. And you think, okay, yeah, what about the story of Job? Like the God in there isn't, isn't promising his believers everlasting bliss. It's like, I'll take you out. Earthquakes, storms, and Satan himself. I'm coming at you. You better get ready. There's no whitewashing that. And Job's response is, no matter what, is thrown out, no matter what it is, he maintains faith, right? And that's, that's not blind stupidity. That's not superstitious, childlike faith. That's, that's toughness. It's like, no, I can handle this. I don't care what it is. There's something that I can ally myself with, like a principle, the principle of truth maybe. There's something I can ally myself with that will carry me through this, mm-hmm. right? And if you yeah. don't have that, then it just takes you out. So you need to have that. Well, you could otherwise you could just be miserable and then also Resentful. be in hell and right. Yeah. Right. Forever. And then that can last for your whole life. Yeah. And maybe your children's life. And yeah, yeah those are the alternatives. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's um let's discuss what we're doing with Peterson Academy. Hey, why don't you introduce it? Okay, I will. So uh I think most people know that you did a personality course a number of years ago which was wildly successful. I thought it was great. And um, I thought, first of all, we should make more of those. Made a bunch of money. And I'm you know, motivated by that. Made a bunch of money. It also taught people. And it was a cool way of learning. Uh, so I thought, well, we should do that. And then I thought, we could do that for other people. And so that's kind of how the idea came up. And then you have been talking about some sort of online university for years and years. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of, I think, amalgamated into Well, I knew, I started learning, you know, when I started putting my lectures out on YouTube, I thought, well, (laughs) obviously, you know, and I also thought, why wouldn't it be good to provide everybody, at least in principle, with access to the best lectures? Yeah. You know, like, because now we can, and the barrier, technological barrier to that is being blown apart. 
And, you know, before you needed 500 lectures on personality, let's say, distributed across the world, and most of them, you know, 95% of them weren't particularly good, but now, in principle, you could gather the best lectures from all over the world and, and then also give them free reign to say what they want, take it out of the idiot bureaucratic restrictions that the universities apply, and bring it to everyone. And so I started experimenting with that on YouTube, and that became wildly popular with people. And yeah, and so then we started doing that with all sorts of other lectures. Whenever I interviewed someone or gathered someone up I thought really knew what they were talking about, we've been recording them. How many courses have we recorded now? We have almost 20. Mm -hmm. We're going to have more on launch. Um, our plan is to launch in November. I think we'll probably do a soft launch, so there's going to be a certain number of, of available, you know, um, memberships that we'll sell. We're aiming for about $40 a month so that it's accessible to everybody and mm -hmm. it'll give people access to the entire platform so they won't have to pay per course. There's a social media element built in, so people will have profiles, they'll be able to DM each other, they'll be able to post, they'll be able to form study groups. Uh, we're hoping to include location, if you want to turn location on, so mm -hmm. people can actually meet up in person if they want mm -hmm. to study together. And the courses look so good. And the nice thing about filming courses is that they can be continually updated. So we have the best cameras we could get, so like Netflix quality cameras, and we can just continually update the courses. And so far, we haven't shot a course that I was like, eh, maybe <laughs> we put this in the, in the back and don't show it to very many people. Mm -hmm. So far, everything's been really good. Oh, and then um, our plan. So we were trying to figure out this whole accreditation process, which is a complete nightmare because all the accreditation, um, what are they processes. called? Processes. Processes yeah. and the accreditors are, are woke, yeah. like yeah. completely woke. Yeah. And the entire university system is kind of structured strangely, and they force you to take courses that aren't really applicable to your degree. It takes a certain number of time. It takes a certain number of years, so you can't really combine all your studying in quickly. The entire thing just bothered me when I went to university. I didn't think it was. I didn't want to take certain courses that I was forced to take for a degree that had nothing to do with it. it made no sense. Um, so we're starting with a general education degree, which I think could be applicable to anybody. Yeah, so let, let me expand on that yeah, a little yeah. bit. So for people who are watching and listening, you know, you might think, well, why should you have a, why should you be generally educated? So that would be something like, why would you take a Bachelor of Arts? And there's two answers to that. One is, well, do you want to learn to communicate and think or not? Yeah. So let's walk through that. Why do you think? So you can think things through before you act them out so you don't end up in hell. That's <laughs> why. So that's why you think. You think so that your stupid thoughts can die instead of you. That's why you think. And that's technically and biologically why you think. So like learn to think. And you're probably mostly going to think in words at, at the more sophisticated level. Um, although you could also think in images. So you should be exposed to the greatest images and the greatest words so that you can craft your tools and prepare. And then, well, why should you communicate? And the answer is, well, like, do you want to have some customers? Because you're going to have to talk to them. You're going to formulate some contracts. Are you going to convince people to come along with you or invite them? It's like, so you better be able to communicate. And so that's on the process front. You should know how to think and you should know how to communicate. Because otherwise, you're going to be a useless, resentful, bitter, pointless, counterproductive lump. And that's not a good strategy. But then there's a second element to it, which is that as you move yourself up the 
ladder of accomplishment, let's say, you'll increasingly encounter people who know things. And, you know, yeah. if you get to the upper echelons of any, uh, of any hierarchy, you'll start encountering people who know a lot about almost everything. And so if you're stupid and you don't know anything about anything, then, like, they're just going to look at you and listen to you for, like, two seconds and think, well, I don't know where this clunk came from, but, you know, he's not come along for the ride. And so you should know something about music and art and literature and history and, and science and of all the different sciences. You need to be enculturated because, well, so that you can play with sophisticated people and you could play a sophisticated and productive game, but also so that you've informed yourself with the greatest ideas of history so that whatever problem you're tackling, you're going to have tools to tackle it with. And so that's why you need to be generally educated and that's why we're putting together this, this corpus of lectures. We're hoping that once we get it well developed, you'll be able to take all these courses and then, you know, you won't be a complete embarrassment to yourself. And that, you know, hypothetically, that'll be useful. And so and on the social front, so one of the things that we've come to realize as we've been thinking through the university issue is that, you know, because you might say, well, why, why will people pay $75,000 a year for a degree? And part of the answer to that is, well, they leave their coterie of high school friends, you know, which is kind of random, and they get to do a personality transformation to grow up and to find a new group of peers. But, and that's very important to find a new group of peers, man. That's worth something. And some of those peers might be the great figures of history, but they also might get a chance to find their mate. You know, and so at a selective university, you bring people together who are young people who are relatively accomplished. And so the pool from which you have to choose your mate is all of a sudden increased in quality dramatically. And so who knows what that's worth? It's worth a lot. And so we realized as we've been building this that universities are whatever they are, they're much more than merely lectures and accreditation. That's probably 25% of what a university offers. A huge part of the rest of it is social milieu and socialization. And so that's why we've been building out the, the social communication part of it. Mm -hmm. And so you're very excited about that part in particular. You've got more excited as we've gone along. And so what do you think's good about the, about the social media side of the, of the platform? Well, we took aspects from social media platforms that already exist and thought, you know, this kind of works. You can stick something like that on here. And I know that, well, Instagram's commonly used for dating now. So DMing people, seeing what they look like, and being able to have a conversation is really important. And I think if you bring a bunch of people onto a platform where you're all trying to learn and improve yourselves, then the quality of people you're going to meet there, at least they're interested in ideas. They're going to be Well, they're also people. on the same developmental course as you. Yeah. So I just wanted to make sure, like when we first started it, we had more of a uh, text-based communication, and I wanted to make sure we had an element of being able to see what people looked like. Because mm -hmm. if you meet someone, you want to see what they look like. Mm -hmm. And I think that's more relevant, I, I actually think that's more relevant for women. I'm not sure if that's backed up, but I know most Instagram users are female, so I think women are more attracted to like, what, what do I look like? What do other people look like? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to put that on the app Whereas something like Reddit, which is mostly text-based and it's, it's mostly male, I didn't want to just stick to that. So we've combined that, um, which I think will also keep people on the platform, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is also one of the mm -hmm. goals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and we all, we're also trying to figure out how to bring people together, like physically, because, you know, it, it's very useful 
what do you do at university? Well, you eat with people, you, you know, you share hospitality, you party with people, and, you know, you can think about that as extraneous entertainment, but it's, it's not. It might be the most important thing you do, actually. And that's also true as you conduct yourself in the professional world, you know, I mean, you make your professional customers and your peers by working together, but the hospitality element of it is incredibly important because that's how you get to know people outside of the narrow sphere of your self shared your shared interest. That's how you sort of decide whether or not you're well, that you can trust each other and whether you can play well together, you know, and that's very important if you want a long term relationship professionally or, you know, or socially. And so we need to be able to duplicate that, and that's going to take some work that, yeah. out. But that, uh, that'll take time, just because we'll need enough people on the platform, so that there will be people on the platform in certain people's areas. So that I mean, depends how many people sign up for how fast right. that'll happen. Right, right. Um, but I think initially we're going to start with a smaller number of people launch in November, and then do a bigger launch in in January, and. I think people are going to love it. Yeah, well, there's a comical element of this, too, because yes. like one of the things I used to do with my graduate students when they were doing a research project is they'd come to me with the project, and I'd send them home for a weekend and say, look, why don't you come back on Monday and tell me how you would do this if you could do it 10 times faster. Now, you might have to cut some corners, right? You might not be able to approach it exactly the same way that you've decided to, but if you could make it 90% more efficient, it's going to be worth a certain degree of sacrifice, especially if you can do that with no decrement in quality. At least think it through. You know, I had one student, um, she was bloody brilliant. She got like 99th percentile on the verbal GRE after learning English four years before. That's right, like that's impossible. And she did it. She was a real genius. And uh, she finished her first draft of her master's degree in one weekend. Yeah. You know, I told my students, like, write a really bad first draft, because you can do that. Anyways, you know, how can you do this 10 times faster? And one of the things we thought that would be very funny, especially because I'm somewhat irritated at universities for a variety of reasons, was we tried, we thought, what if we could make getting a degree 95% less expensive? Because yeah. that's a pretty funny target. It's like, we're gonna undercut you by 95% and, and offer a better quality experience along the way, at least in terms of explicit learning. And, and you know, I think that we have a crack at that. And on the yes. accreditation front, so we've been banding this out a lot. You know, I went and talked to some people. There are people that wanted to partner with us, you know, modern brick universities, that in principle could have helped us with the accreditation process. And we've been talking to people in different political jurisdictions who are interested in partnering with us, some in Canada and some in the U.S., some in Europe. But our conclusion has been, especially after having good faith discussions with them, is that the detrimental consequence in terms of time and effort yeah. and perversion of the ultimate goal in terms of pursuing accreditation might make it not worthwhile. And so what we thought instead, I think this is a better solution, is that we're going to go directly to businesses. Like, you'll be able to take courses on our site, but it's not going to be that easy to get the degree, right? It's going to be rigorous, and if you get a degree from our institution, you'll be tiered so people will know how well you perform, but the performance criteria will be like intense and reliable. Now, the disadvantage to that is it's gonna be harder to get the degree. The advantage is that if you do get it, you're gonna be far more marketable once people know that the degree is a valid signifier. And so we're gonna to talk to businesses, which we can definitely do, and say, look, you know, um, 
here's what our graduates will know, here's how we tested them, they'll be able to communicate, this is the rigorous process they went through, you'll be damn fortunate if we can provide you with a list of people who've graduated, and if you had any sense, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll employ them preferentially because we did the rigorous screening work, and I know how to do the rigorous screening work because I studied that for like 25 years, and I worked with a company in California that started like 5,000 small businesses around the world. We screened tens of thousands of people. We know how to predict for managerial competence, administrative competence, creative competence, and we really know how to do that. Um, and so our, a degree from our university will signify high-level conscientiousness and general cognitive ability, and those are very valuable for any employer with a clue. So I think we can just skip the accreditation yeah. process and go right to the employers. And then we've also been thinking about, you know, allying our general education approach with something like a requirement for something maybe approximating a technical training boot camp so that people who come out, you know, will also have one other layer of marketable skill and teaching people how to program, you know, you need to be able to spin a laptop around on your finger like Harlem Globetrotter does with a basketball because then you're, you know, 15 times as deadly. And so yeah. we haven't quite worked out exactly how we're going to do that. But it, it's all, you know, these boot camps last, what, 10 weeks? Yeah, I know. Yeah, if, if people could get a general education degree so that they could have a conversation with competent people and not sound like a moron, and then they did some sort of boot camp to hone exactly what the skills they wanted in order to get a job, they'd be more educated than most people who go to university. Oh, yeah. For definitely. sure. Oh, definitely. So that's the goal. Yeah. And, and so and our, our criteria for selecting professors is, well, do you know what you're talking about? And are you extremely interesting? And that's good criteria. And uh, then we tell the people who come, it's like, come offer the course that you could offer if you offered the course that would be exactly the course you would want to offer and assume that you'll have an audience of people who really want that because we... we Everybody records in front of a live audience, and we select the audience very carefully. It's people who want to be in the audience to listen to that topic. And so we have extremely enthusiastic uh, professors mm -hmm. and extremely enthusiastic audiences, and the filming is very high quality, and the editing is high quality, and we've added all sorts of graphics. And ooh, ooh, there's more, too. Uh, so when you're watching the video, these are some features. I don't want to give them all away. But when you're watching the video, you'll be able to comment on the video while you're watching it, and it'll be time-stamped. So if you go to the middle of the video, you can see what people are talking about there. You can also see the entire transcript, which is so helpful because I, I actually have an easier time just reading a transcript than I do watching a video for whatever reason or listening to a podcast. So you get the entire transcript, which has been edited. Um, you'll be, be able to highlight and annotate the transcript so you can take notes, and then there's a section of the app for that. It's, it's what I would have wanted if I had taken online courses, which I did, and they were terrible. It's what I would have wanted watching courses and taking notes. So yeah, well, I, I so think we most universities, it. and this is why they've failed with these massive online courses mostly, is they take a bad lecture and then film it badly. Yeah. Right, and it's like the lecture itself isn't very exciting, and then you add like really low production quality and bad audio. It's like that none of that's helpful, and it, none of that's adapted to the realities of the digital communication age. There's just no reason to be stuck in that model. And so, we'll see. It's an exciting venture. And it's a big we project. also, you know, one of the things we've done too, this has been really fun. So, when we did the Exodus seminar, um, some of the people who 
came for the Exodus seminar. They were professors from Cambridge, mostly, uh, on the professorial side. They also recorded lectures for the Peterson Academy. And, you know, we treated them really well. And you'd think that professors from Cambridge would be treated with respect and paid reasonably well. And they're not treated with respect by their institution and often not by their students. And they're not paid well at all by any reasonable standard. And so when we brought them to Miami, we just treated them really well. And this is something to really know if you're starting a business enterprise with people is that um, the hospitality that you show people pays off dramatically. Now, you shouldn't do that just for instrumental reasons. That's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that, you know, if you treat the people that you work with like you're happy that they're there, and maybe like you're really happy that they're there and thank you very much for coming and is there anything we can do to make this easier for you and more fun and uh, you know, we'll never let you forget for a moment how thrilled we are that you're participating. And believe me, that's a very rare attitude shown towards professors, even if they're high-end professors at great institutions. It was sort of like that when I was at Harvard for a while. Harvard was damn good at treating its senior professors in particular well, but Man, that vanished across time. You just ended up, even if you were a great professor, and sometimes because you were a great professor and there was jealousy, you just, you just got treated like, you know, just another employee. And, um, and, and that isn't really what I mean. Just another expendable cog. And that's all, also how students ended up being treated too. Just another number, you know, and that's just not helpful. So. We've, we've been very hospitable to the professors that have come on board and, you know, partly that's because we would like them to come back, but it isn't instrumental in that sense. We didn't get together and say, well, we better treat these people right so that they keep producing content for us. It was like, no, we're really happy we're, that we could, we could invite high quality people and we're going to bloody well be sensible enough to be appreciative of the fact that they are high quality people and that that's rare and we're going to build that into everything we do. And lots of the people, Greg, for example, really commented, you know, and it's a lot of the people I've talked to recently, they've been very happy with how they've been handled, so to speak, when they've come down to Miami. And Yay. hopefully, if we have any sense, we'll, we won't let that disappear. No. It's one of the things I've no, really no, liked no, about won't. working with the Daily Wire Plus crew, too, you know, is that we're in this expansion phase of that enterprise, and everybody's enthusiastic about new ideas. And when you have a new idea and you perform, there isn't a lot of backbiting jealousy going on behind the scenes. Everybody's happy to be on board and, you know, and, and positive about the expansive ideas. And that's rare if you're in an in, in, if you're in an environment like that, man. That's rare. And well, so far that's what's been happening with Peterson Academy. Yeah. I've done what? I did a course on Nietzsche, half of Beyond Good and Evil. Yep. I did a course on the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. That I really looks liked that great. one. Yeah, that I, really looks great. I did one on Maps of Meaning. One on Maps of Meaning, an update of Maps of Meaning, and shorter than the ones that I've done online. So these are all eight-hour courses because we figured that was about the right length. And uh, one on Piaget. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we've got a bunch upcoming. Yeah, yeah. So and I think that was all of them, eh? Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for the opportunity to run with Peterson Academy. You having it's a good time? Fun. Yeah. Why? Well... So most of my life, especially since I was about 23, because before that was just a blur of horror. <laughs> After that was kind of a blur of horror too. But, <laughs> um, but most of my life I've probably spent trying to fix problems. 
And they were problems that it wasn't like something that kind of bothered me. It was like, this is going to kill you, right? Like autoimmune disorder or something, which I think normally people would be like, well, it's something I have and I just have to live with and then I'm going to die. But at some point, for some reason, I was like, no, I'm going to fix it. I don't know why. I think it's because I was worried I was going to die. I was like, well, I better start doing other things. Um, and so most of my life I've spent working on problems that were generally related to health that I needed to go away in order to do things I actually wanted. This is probably the first time, other than the podcast, I really like podcasting. And so that's been kind of my separation from all the problems I'm working on. But this is the first time I'm working on something bigger that is something that I want to do. And, it, right, and so this is more like an opportunity than a problem. Yeah, which mm -hmm. is really exciting. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that's, it's, it's fun in a much less stressful way because mm -hmm. it's just, oh, look at all the opportunity. Oh, we could add this, we could what, add what this. What have you liked most about it? Like you've interacted with these professors, you set up a film crew, you've set up a studio, like, and, and you set up the business around that too and learned a lot about business in the last five years. Oh yeah, I know way more about international taxes than I want to ever wanted to. Uh, I think the most fun part of Peterson Academy was figuring out what should be on the actual platform. I mean, it, it's exciting talking to professors and helping them come up with courses that would be interesting, but I really like the idea of building a platform that has a really easy way for people to communicate and learn. Mm -hmm. And it's all there. And every time I'm going on a social media platform or if I'm on some video app or Netflix is pretty good, but like just apps. I'm like, why is this loading slowly? Mm -hmm. Why are there pop-ups here? Why do I have to press three times to get where I want? There's just, I guess, UI things that really irk me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it's nice being able to design something that's going, oh no, that's annoying. We're not going to have that. Mm -hmm. That's annoying. Well, We're not going to have that. You're in a good position to do this. Um, Michaela got involved in my businesses. You tell me if I've got the story right because I was sick for a fair bit of this, but when things blew up for our family, and that was in 2016, 2017, I started to tour. Things started to be occurring on a much broader scale, financially and practically. And Tammy stepped in to help on the logistical front, and then you stepped in to help, well, on the business front, right? You didn't know much about business at that point. Kind, well, kind okay. of, kind of. So yes, in, in um, there were some people you were working with and I did some research on like rates you should be paid and thought you were being underpaid. So I said, we should fire these people. So I fired a number of people and hired other people, you know, to help you. Um, so on that side, I was involved in the business. Mostly what I focused on until really a, two years ago, a year and a half ago, was social media. Yeah, so it was right. like, put them on Instagram, you know, make sure videos are done properly, post every day, like spread it around online. So that was my main focus for a number of years, as opposed to the business end. That was more a couple of years ago when our business end fell apart and it really fell apart. Right, and I yeah. was like, you okay, also learned that I don't a lot trust of the anybody. people who said that they knew what to do on the business oh, front no were really idea. good at saying what to do on the business and front. And being expensive. Right, so right. you're like, they're expensive and they say they know what they're doing. Right. No. If you can't understand somebody you're working with, you shouldn't work with them. Mm -hmm. It's not that they know so much more than you that you don't understand, which is a mistake. I think that took me like two years to figure out working with some people when I was like, I don't really get it but I'm not a business person. Maybe or I just don't get it. Or a lawyer. Yeah, or a tax lawyer. Yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe I just don't understand. And then eventually I was like, no, 
I think it's this person, and then mm -hmm. it was that person. So mm -hmm. don't make that yeah, mistake. Yeah, well, and, and on the Peterson Academy front, I mean, because you you learn the... So if you're working in different social media platforms, every social media platform is its own cultural ecosystem, right? And then to function effectively in that cultural ecosystem, you have to understand the customs of the natives, right? So when, when the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, for example, started putting their stuff on YouTube, for which they had nothing but contempt, they'd put on like three-minute clips with a three-minute ad at the beginning that you couldn't skip, and then they'd like disallow comments. So they get like, you know, a hundred and maybe get 10,000 views. And, you know, then that just made them more contemptuous, but they didn't know that well, nobody wants to watch a three-minute ad to watch your three-minute idiot video, that, and they certainly want to be able to skip the ad, and you don't get to disallow comments because that's not how YouTube works. And so you have to know the culture. And then not only do you have to know the culture and not be contemptuous of it, it's like just all oh, those TikTok users, you know, you have to have some respect for yeah. them. And then you have to stay on the cutting edge because it's very competitive, and if you're not on the cutting edge, which moves all the time, then... Well, people get bored of what you're doing and you sink to the bottom. And so, Michaela, you've been operating in how many different social media platforms are we effectively operating on? Well, we're, we're on the main ones. Like, I mean, you started YouTube at the beginning of YouTube. So, like, that was you. Um, Twitter was probably you, too. But Instagram and Facebook. Twitter's those still are, me. <laughs> Twitter's definitely <laughs> still you. <laughs> um, it's Instagram and Facebook... Um, I think I made your Facebook in like 2013 before any of this started and then Instagram was more like 2017 or something I, and then TikTok as well. Mm -hmm. TikTok, we've hired people to make TikTok content. It works better if you're actually on there filming yourself, talking to your audience and mm -hmm. we're, we're using clips so it'd be more effective if we actually spent more time talking to the audience on TikTok but we also have like 10,000 things going on, so it's not a primary concern, mm -hmm. but all, all, all the major ones. Right. Well, and the advantage for Peterson Academy is that you know the social media platforms well enough in principle by using them constantly to know what features a good social media platform is going to have to have, right? And so that's the thing, too. You know, if you're, I've started a lot of businesses and worked with a lot of people now, and one of the things you need to know if you're, there's this idea that the Harvard Business School came out with a long time ago that, you know, if you're a good manager, whatever the hell that is, you can manage anything. And that's, I think that's complete bloody nonsense because my experience has been, I think people who manage and know nothing and think that managing is a thing think that. But it's not true. The people I've watched who run their businesses properly, and I would say my partner Daniel Higgins is a good example of this, is like, he knows absolutely everything about 100% of the entire business from the like ones and zeros in the code all the way up to the customer base. Like he knows it and someone has to know it. And you, like you have to get in there and grapple with the details in order to run something properly. If you start parsing that off, if there's no one who knows that, the whole thing is going to go sideways. And so you've been actually in the trenches with the social media systems for six years right yeah. as they've risen up and so you actually know them so yeah you know and that's been very useful and we never were contemptuous of all these different social media platforms you know because i saw this with my professorial colleagues especially with regards to journalists and you know there's reasons to be contemptuous at least of certain journalists because journalism attracts more than its fair share of narcissists but my colleagues when journalists would phone me i'd always talk to them 
And my colleagues would talk to me about that, and their usual response was, well, I don't really talk to journalists. And I'd say, well, why not? So, well, they always get things wrong. And I think, I see, so all of the journalists get things you say wrong. And so they're all wrong. I thought, well, maybe you're just not very good at explaining yourself, and you're not that interesting. It's like, you know, heaven forbid that thought. And so, and I also didn't ever treat journalists unless they deserved it, you know, like they were snakes. Um, although even sometimes, though, they are. Um, most of the time. No, I'm In not. mainstream media, most of the time. Yeah, it's all, it, especially if they're British and female. And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I don't know why those all go together. Because the British journalists, they're quite the pack of hounds, eh? And then there's some real specialists on that front. And um, their whole career is, how can I trap you into saying something utterly stupid once so I get to pat myself on the back and aggrandize myself? Yeah, what a job. Oh, yeah. Vicious, man. Vicious. Anyways, um, we learned that, and I always thought, and this is partly from being a psychologist, you know, uh, same thing on the self-help front. If you're a behavioral psychologist, all the ones I knew, they give their clients self-help books all the time. Because, you know, if you have a client who's... Uh, who's got problems with anger, there's some good self-help books written on anger management. It's like, why not give them a book? You know, and you can be contemptuous of that. It's just a self-help book. It's like, well, what the hell is the problem here? It's in intro-level philosophy, and someone's taken time and effort to read. That seems like a good thing. And then also to try to make themselves better. You're going to be contemptuous of that. You know, and one particularly smart, derisive, horrible, snake-like journalist said that I was the <laughs> stupid person, smart person. That took me back for a while, you know, and then I thought, ah, you think that's an insult. Yeah. That's the sort of person you are. It's like, oh, no, I'm making complex things accessible to people who aren't particularly educated. That's called an educator. So, and I always felt, on the journalist front, I always felt the same way. It's like, well, why the hell wouldn't you communicate with as broad an audience as possible? And we brought that same attitude to all, all these social media platforms. It's like, you know, you can make fun of TikTok, and maybe you should, but at least to some degree, but you could always figure out how it works and then use it as a communication tool. And we have all these little tiny shorts of all sorts of different lengths. And, you know, if you can say something in a few sentences for 15 seconds that, you know, 10,000 people are going to learn something from, what in the world is wrong with that? And so, well, that's one of the advantages to not having a derisive attitude towards things. Yeah, if you have a derisive attitude towards things, too, you're just going to make less money. <laughs> oh, this is just like bluntly, oh, I can't do that. That's below me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Have I know. I'm that. not going to sell out. This is funny, too. You know, there's some of you out there thinking, I wouldn't sell out. It's like, yeah, don't be thinking you're going to get the opportunity to. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, there, there's no shortage of failed artists who blame that on failure to sell out. It's like, it's not that easy to sell out. And it also presumes that there are people who want what you're offering. And uh, that's pretty goddamn unlikely. And, you know, there are cheap sellouts and there are expert sellouts. And if you're an expert sellout, what has happened is that you've brought your ability to sell and market and, and communicate to the same level as your ability to create and produce. And that's all a plus, not a minus. And so if you think there's an integral competition between being creative and being commercially successful, all that means is that you haven't harnessed your creativity to solving the problem of productive communication. There's nothing about it that's moral. 
you can pat yourself on the back all you want for not being an evil capitalist, but it, most of the time it just means you don't know what the hell you're doing. And you want to make that moral instead of facing the consequences of your own ignorance. Mm -hmm. So, pat, pat, I'm not an evil capitalist. It's like, no, you're, a, you're poor and resentful. Congratulations. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping my goal with like this opportunity with Peterson Academy, other than to educate people and to produce great content and to build something that's fun to use and, and all that, is to make you more money than you've made with this project. Why do you find that interesting? Now, look, you've always been... I think I find it funny. Why okay, do I, well, okay. So why do I find it funny? Yeah. Like, that idea or that goal? Well, but it's, it's, there's two things. Okay, you find it funny, but like... One, one time I remember when Michaela was, I don't know how old she was, she was about seven, I think, something like that. I think it was just before you were diagnosed with, with, uh, with arthritis. Six. Six, six. You, we were living in, in this little ratty apartment on the University of Toronto campus, and we, we saw people coming and going in front of the house, and we went downstairs, and Michaela had taken all of the books, all of her kids' books, out in the front yard and was selling them. Um, and... Uh, she didn't ask. She just went out there and sold all these books. And, you know, some school teacher had come by and bought like 30 of them because it was like all the Dr. Seuss books and everything. They were worth tons of money yeah, yeah. now. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah Poor yeah. business decision. But, yeah, but it was, it, was, it was fun to watch. And, like, we, we didn't say anything at all that I'd was negative. i read them already. Yeah, I know. Like, it was done. time. Well, and I thought it was right. It's like you were done with those books and you were trying to figure out what to do with them and you had taken it on to yourself to, you know, undertake this entrepreneurial venture and I thought that was really see this is another example of not if someone does something new that's exploratory and good it's really easy to punish it out of existence like if your wife for example maybe your wife makes a little detour in her style choices right and she buys something new that's a little different and you're thinking well what would you might be thinking uh, you might be thinking well what are people going to think of me if my wife goes out dressed like that it's like that's a pretty dismal thought there, buddy. Or maybe you're afraid of her new fashion choice or you don't want her to become a new person because maybe she'd wise up and get rid of you or you're jealous because she's trying something new and you're stuck in your idiot rut or God only knows what stupid jealous thoughts are going through your mind. And so, or maybe you actually don't like the new thing that she's bought and maybe it's not even that good. And so, you know, that's probably unlikely because what makes you a fashion maven compared to your wife, for example. But... You know, so she tries something new, which is her attempt to be a little more interesting than she already is, and maybe that's a good thing because then you don't get bored with your wife. And she tries this, and she's not perfect at it, so you kind of insult her either by not paying attention to it or by saying something rude, and then that's it. Like, for the rest of her life, she wears the clothes she bought in, like, 1975. And then you think, oh, my wife, she's really let herself go. And the answer is, no, she just turned into what you let her become. And so you see yeah. someone, that's right, man. It's brutal. It's brutal to watch people do that to each other. It's horrible, and it really costs them. I'm bored with my partner. It's like, yeah, well, you probably put them in a box. Peter, Peter, and the pumpkin shell, right, where you kept her very well. No, no kidding. Sad. So someone will try something new and kind of scares you, and so you'll, you know, either not reward them or interfere. And it, if it's a new thing for the person, it's really fragile. And if you punish them, you can just obliterate. You can train a dog to starve itself to death oh. by hitting itself on the nose, hitting it on the nose with a newspaper when it approaches its food dish, right? 
So now I don't know who discovered that, by That's the way. That's horrible. Well, it was part of the behavioral experiments on behavioral modification, you know. But the, the point it's was is that now. if it's reward-seeking behavior, incentive reward-seeking behavior, it's really easy to obliterate it with punishment, even if it's a fundamental motivational goal. So this situation with you when you were selling these books, like one tack would have been, did you ask? And the lesson there is, well, if you're ever going to do something new, you have to ask, you have to get permission. And that's a stupid lesson to teach someone. It's like, well, are you getting a good price for your books? It's like, she's, she's six. You want her to be not only a capitalist, but to get it right the first time. That's your stupid theory, right? So the right response there is, you know, like, why'd you do this? And, you know, good for you for taking a risk. And so, but my point was, is that you had an interest in money. We could always bribe you when you were a little kid. Like, I think... I remember collecting special coins, too. I remember I gave you guys my money when we moved from Boston to Toronto. Do you remember that? No. I remember that. I was five. Well, we were having, like, money. Like, we, we didn't have that... We didn't have a lot of money. No, not Until recently. Yeah, 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 because... We mom, couldn't even mom, afford magazines. Yeah, mom wasn't able to work. Yeah. And so, and she was a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I remember there... I remember hearing you guys discuss moving stressfully. Mm -hmm. I remember giving you my piggy bank. Oh, what right. Was, yes, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you were a generous kid for someone who grew up to be an evil, evil capitalist. Yeah, but you always had that capitalist aspect, and you were always motivated by money. You know, and you were always pissed off if you bought something that didn't work, too. That was funny to watch you, too. Man, there was nothing more irritated than Michaela when she was sick. She'd go spend some money in, like, a department store oh, and buy a piece yeah. of junk. It like, took her, like, two years to recover if that happened. But we could all, like... Hard-earned money. When, I, when you first started to use injections with your autoimmune uh, medication, we wanted to transfer you the responsibility of doing the needles because you, you obviously didn't like having needles. And we thought if you could learn to do it, then it would be under your control. It would be a mastery, and it would be less stressful for you. And so the first time that we did that, I offered you, and you were young, I offered you, I think, 50 bucks if you could do it within 40 minutes, right? I said, I'll give you 50 bucks, kid. You sit on, time. oh yeah, you sit on those stairs, you see if you can do this yourself, I'll give you 50 bucks. I missed an entire episode of The Simpsons. Could hear yeah. you guys watching it downstairs. Yeah, that's traumatic. So not only are you sitting bit. there with a needle, yeah. you didn't get to watch The Simpsons. That was the only TV show I let the kids watch, by the way, which I also thought was extremely hilarious. But not itchy and so, scratchy. Yeah, yeah, cover your eyes. Itchy and scratchy. Cover your eyes. <laughs> Anyways, you know, you it took you about 35 minutes before you did it. Yeah. And then the next time I said, I think I, because I didn't want to give her 50 bucks like three times a day. So, although I really wouldn't have cared. I think the next time it was like week. 30 bucks in 20 minutes and we got you down. It was so $5. That, it was $5 a needle is pretty cheap. You know, uh, you mean that was that, that at the end of that it? That was at the end of it, yeah. Right, right. But we also whittled down the amount of time, right? So that you had to do it in narrower, yeah, narrow yeah. amounts of time. But th the point of that was that we could always use money as a motivator for you. And I don't know why that was. Ex I mean, some people are more entrepreneurially motivated by temperament, yeah, right? It must but, be. Yeah, so you, oh, you definitely. You can't pay some people. I've noticed this hiring people. Like sometimes you hire somebody, and this is rare. But you, you bring them in and they go, I finished everything you asked me to do. Can I do more? Yeah. Those are rare people. And those are very useful people. Mm -hmm. And if you want to earn money, that's the person you have to be. Is I've done everything you asked me to do. I did it really quickly. It's all done. Can I do anything else? Yeah, yeah. I want to do more. Yeah, you bet. And then you, you make more money. Mm -hmm. it, it's mm -hmm. like, it's rare that that isn't rewarded. Right? right but the, absolutely. Like the average person, you 
higher, then they have a set outline of responsibilities. And if you ask them to do anything over that, it's, oh, that's not part of my job. Yeah. I don't want to work yeah. any yeah, extra. We need to emphasize that for everybody who's listening. You've got to understand this. That's your job isn't the minimal set of responsibilities that you have that someone else delivers to you. If that's how you construe your job, and then you think, well, well, I've done my job. I've done enough. It's like, I don't care how much you've done. It's not enough. Now, You're never going to make more. Well, well, why? The answer is you want to be the person that the person who has the opportunities turns to and gives you more opportunities. That's who you want to be. And the way you do that is by doing what Michaela just said. It's like you do everything you're supposed to do as fast as you can and, 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 and properly. And then you might ask for what else you could do. But if you're even smarter, you look around and you think, what around yeah. here hasn't been done that I could do? And then if you're even smarter than that, you don't do that invisibly, right? Because then you end up a martyr. You know, you're mopping up things that maybe other people should have done, but no one notices. You want to go to your employer and you say, look, here's what you asked me to do. Here's how I did it, like ahead of schedule and under budget. Then here's a bunch of other things I found to do, and I did them. And then, you know, you tell your, and that's partly how you, you don't blow your own horn, right? But you're acting as your own advocate. You bring it to the person's attention. You say, look, you know, I did the things you want and a bunch of other things. And then if the person's busy and has opportunities in any sense, they think the next time a problem comes up, they think, hmm, now I've got a problem, yeah. a new opportunity. Who should I? Oh, yeah, yeah, that kid. Yeah, I'll give that opportunity to him. You know, you'll see people in your life, you think those people are lucky. It's like sometimes they are and you can get unlucky and that's for sure. But they're often not exactly lucky. It's their, their, if an opportunity comes their way, they don't think they're better than the goddamn opportunity. And so, and you think, well, that's not how the world really works. It's all about power and exploitation. It's like, have it your way, man, live that way. And, and then it'll be true. And you'll be in, you'll be in like progressive hell. And so I wouldn't recommend that. It's much better to do this. Yeah. Say, what, what's the next thing I can do? Okay, so you liked, you liked the fact with Peterson Academy that it's an opportunity rather than something that's really being thrust on you as a like life or death problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, that's enjoyable. fun. That's fun. And you liked solving the social media puzzle part. What else do you like about it? And offering this opportunity to people because that's a fun thing to be to be participating in. And yeah. you know, the open-ended aspect of that's cool too, because yeah. we have no idea where this might go. You know, like in principle, we could offer, you know, hundreds of thousands of people a high quality university degree for $5,000. Right, so that's, that's a ridiculously interesting, what would you say, world to step into if that's possible. I, I also do like the aspect, like I didn't enjoy my university experience, and it was before universities were as woke as they were, but it, I was at an art school in Montreal called Concordia, and it was already woke. Uh, and it was really frustrating to, because I had like loans and things, and it was frustrating to pay for courses, and they were terrible. The professor wasn't interesting. I was like, I'm pretty sure what they just said wasn't true, right? I got a psychology professor tell me rats weren't social creatures because they lived in cages. Literally, that happened. And I was like, did you hear what he said? He said and she was like, yeah, just like, you know, listen to, to him. I was like, what? I'm not traveling 40 minutes to go to this class. And so th that was frustrating. And then I was taking they courses used to that rats. I didn't want to take. They used to aggregate out in the wild and build little wire cages and then hide yeah, in Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so they could be isolated. So they could be lonesome and, rats. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, and so I, I think it's funny too. And I think it's cruel that people are told they have to go to university, they have to spend a dollars to $200,000 to get a degree so they can get a job, otherwise they're screwed. That's such a lie, it's just a scam. I think the entire thing is a scam right now. You can learn whatever you want online. I think we have the upper hand from just random YouTube because it's gonna be edited and we have access it's to curated. these professors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we can give everybody access to these like world-class professors. But um, it bothers me. It doesn't bother me like a health issue, but it bothers me that people are being scammed to learn to, you know, not believe in themselves, assume that they can't fix their problems and then hate their country, basically. But, and it'll cost you $200,000, so if you weren't resentful before, you definitely will be now, but it's not our fault. Yeah, and then that'll just be evidence that the system is screwed exactly. and oppressive. Yeah. 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 Everything's oppressive. Well, what's the proof of that? Well, just wait till you feel, wait till you see how you feel about the university that taught you that everything was oppressive. Yeah. And then you'll see that everything is oppressive, including the university. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So now, but you also said that you think it's funny on the financial side. So what's the, what's the joke? What's the joke? I think it's funny that we have the opportunity, and I don't know how big it's going to get, but I think it would be funny if we could blow apart the university system a little bit because it's broken mm -hmm. because of what it did to you. Like you were alienated out of your job, basically. Um, so, I mean, that's part of the joke. I think that's funny. I think it's funny that I went to university. Up I, yours, woke moralists. Yeah, we'll see who cancels who. Exactly. That sort of funny. That, that kind of funny. Oh, yeah, that kind uh, of funny. I, I think it's funny that, like, I went to two different universities. I did, like, half a degree in classics and then half a degree in biomedical science, and then I ended up quitting and working for you. So I don't have a degree. I think it'd be funny to get a degree from a university that we're building. Mm -hmm. I think that's funny, too. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's weird and funny that we're in a situation that we might be able to make this work. Mm -hmm. And we might be able to change the education system. Mm -hmm. That's funny. Mm -hmm. It's weird. It's mm -hmm. a little weird more than funny, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's, that's part of the weirdness of adventure. So I've been writing this new book um, called We Who Wrestle With God. Yeah. And it's coming out in February. And it's going, How's that going? It's going great. I'm, I'm having quite the blast writing it, although it's hard on me because it's a, it's a foundational really? book. Yeah, wow. so it's, it's, it's hard to do. And it's, it's kind of like, it kind of rattles me up. Um, I spent like three weeks in a monastery just outside of Vienna writing a big chunk of it. And that was a really good place to be. It was very calm and peaceful and beautiful. And, you know, like I was dealing with foundational stories and they rattle you up, you know, because you, you'll read one, especially if you get an insight into it, it just kind of takes you out. And so there's some real psychological challenge in that. It's frightening, you know, when some of these stories open up and you realize what they're pointing to. It kind of scares you to your core. And, and that's unsettling, even though it might be necessary. Um, and I was writing about Abraham, and there's a characterization of divinity in Abraham. And the characterization of divinity is adventure. So God in the story of Abraham is the instinct that calls you to adventure. And so Abraham is enticed out of his security because he comes from rich parents, he's privileged, you know, and he could just lay around in his tent and eat peeled grapes from like servant girls for his whole life. But this voice comes to him and says, he's like 70 when this happens, get the hell out of your comfort zone and out into the world. And Abraham decides to listen. And then, you know, all hell breaks loose because he has a rough time of it, like famine and war and betrayal. And like, he has the whole adventure of life. 
right? But, but the thing that's very interesting about that is that even though it's much less comfortable than just the infantile bliss that his life starts out with, it's, it's got this glorious aspect to it, right? It's this triumphant Vikings on the high sea, get the hell out and have an adventure through the jungle element to it. It's a romantic adventure, fundamentally. And one of the things I've realized as a consequence of, of walking through that book is that what people want in life isn't security and it isn't happiness. It's they want what they will pay for when they go see a movie. They want a romantic adventure, you know, and if you have a problem that's in front of you, like the collapse of the education system, the adventure is, well, you know, can we confront that problem head on and enter into a world where our adventure is doing whatever's necessary to solve that problem? And that is, that has got that joke-like aspect to it in the most positive sense, but it's also, it's also the adventure of calling and meaning. And, you know, and it is, I know too, you know, when I was really sick, when I wrote my last book, because I was really sick when I wrote my last book, um, I could barely sit. And I spent a number of hours most days writing. And, you know, I was still really sick, even though I was writing. But at least I had a terrible problem to solve. And thank God for that, right? Because that's what you want. This is something people don't understand is, you know, you think, I have a problem. I don't want to have a problem. It's like, yeah, actually, you probably should thank God that you have a problem that, that grips you, you know? Now, it's going to depend on your attitude towards the problem, but there's no difference between a problem and a glorious adventure if you, if you organize yourself properly in terms of conceptualizing the problem. Maybe like one's a little bit more painful. Well, <laughs> you know, if you had your druthers, you'd probably want the opportunity rather than the problem. But, but there's you're opportunity have and problems. For well, sure. but and also you're going to have problems. So, so even if you'd rather have the opportunity, which you should rather have if you're sane, you still need an attitude to help you with the fact that you're going to have a problem. You know, and one of the right attitudes is, well, you know, the bigger the dragon, the larger the treasure. And that's actually... Yeah. That's actually true it's the deepest it might be the deepest human truth that's why it's the core of the hero myth you know and and it's it's a weird it's weird that the world might be constituted in that way but well why wouldn't the greatest reward come to the person who solves the most intractable problem like you know it's kind of obvious when you think about it that way yeah. so yeah. yeah 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 so so it's nice to have a hard problem and then you have something to sink your teeth into. Yeah, and if you have no idea what you want to do with your life, that's where you should start. Like, what's wrong with it? Okay, fix that. Right, Then right. at least it won't be as bad. Right, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's another thing you learn as a behavioral psychologist. Like, people will come and say, well, I'm miserable. It's like, well, let's get specific. What sucks about your life? Like, specifically. And so then the person, they might have to talk to you for 100 hours to detail out that. And then the next part is, okay, what sucks about your life that you would like to change and you could see differently, right? Because sometimes a person will have a problem. You can say, well, what do you want to do about that? And they go, well, I don't know. Or I can't do anything. Or I can't. But, then, but there's a subset of problems where you say, well, how could you change this so it was better? And they have an idea. 
And then there's a smaller subset where you can say, well, is there some problems that you see a solution to that you see a pathway towards solving? And they'll say, well, I could do this. Like, hey, do that, do that. And that's, a humil that's humility, right? Because you have to, first of all, you have to admit that you don't know everything, I have problems. Then you have to admit that some of them are beyond you. Then you have to admit that there's some that you could address that you haven't because you're useless. And then you have to admit that this is the step that you could take, even, no matter how small it is. So you get there by, you get there on your knees, you get there through humility. It's like, but then if you start, this is what's cool about it, if you start local and low, then, and you do it religiously, you'll get better at solving problems yeah, very rapidly. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't really matter I'm where you start. scared of doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that starts to scale really quickly. This episode was sponsored by Schwenk Grills. If you want to impress your friends and get Morton's or high-end steakhouse-level steaks, this is a grill you can use in your backyard or patio that works. I've used it. It's really high quality. Schwenk Grills gives a mired reaction crust like high-end steakhouses. They're also portable, so now steakhouse style steaks are an option while camping if you want to get really bougie. Schwenk Grills also offers a 14 day guarantee and these guys were good enough to get my audience $150 off by using code MP150 at checkout at schwenkgrills.com. As someone who only eats meat, how you cook the meat matters and it's basically impossible to beat 1500 degree grilled steaks at home. Go to schwenkgrills.com and use code MP150 that's S-C-H-W-A-N-K-G-R-I-L-L-S dot com. Code MP150 to save $150. The link's in the comments below. Enjoy the rest of this episode. We're almost out of time. Can we talk about two things? Sure. Okay. One, um, I've been getting fairly tortured on Twitter about this Andrew Tate thing. Hmm. Are you okay with addressing that? Sure. Okay. So I think first, before we get started, and I only want to talk about this once because I'm very bored of this, mm -hmm. um, delve into this too much, but I think a bit of clarification on my end. In 2019, I was in Germany and Andrew Tate bought me tickets to fly to Romania to go discuss business and then to fly back to Canada. And the reason I went was because in 2019, when you Googled Andrew Tate, he came up as a millionaire kickboxer. He had ideas about a subscription platform for me and for you. And I think part of the way, because of how I grew up, I basically said yes to opportunities and I didn't see a reason to not go talk to a millionaire about how he made money. Mm -hmm. And I also got the benefit of a ticket home. Mm -hmm. And I was also already in Germany. Mm -hmm. So I didn't see a reason not to go. That's also probably, Partly because I used to say yes to any opportunity, which I also think is part of the reason why I'm successful now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So anyway, um, I went there. From my experience, I met Andrew and I met, met his brother Tristan. They were very nice to me. Mm -hmm. Like They were nice to me. We had a fun time. They're, the reason that there's a rumor, there's a rumor online that we hooked up or we slept together or something, that didn't happen. I've told people that numerous times. It's not like I was a yeah. Well, people like to girl, cast like those versions online too. It's one of the things I've really seen that the troll demons like to go after women on that front, right? And so, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, it's really so vicious, it's like, nasty, it, it, backbiting behavior. And it doesn't matter what I say. Mm -hmm. He's dispelled it, doesn't matter. Um, anyway, I haven't really commented on the situation because when I went, they were nice to me. Like, I, I actually had a pretty good time. He drove me around in his Bugatti and we saw castles, which was a weird experience. I remember telling him, he was a very, very, very smart person. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember telling him, you kind of remind me of a human shark. I don't know mm -hmm. like what mm -hmm. it was, but I was like, you're interesting. I don't know if it's your eyes or something, but you kind of remind me of a human shark. That was it. And then I flew home. Mm -hmm. So that like, that's the story on my end. Now, mm -hmm. I wanted to address that because people have been bothering me on Twitter for like two years or three mm -hmm. years because mm -hmm. of pictures of us uh, smoking cigars or having a vodka or something because I did. Mm -hmm. um, and it was fun. Mm -hmm. But that's it. That's the story on my end. Do you think you made any mistakes in, in, in that venture? Well, I had no idea he was going to become like the most famous person in the entire world. Mm -hmm. um, would that have changed it? N I don't think so. Like from knowing what I knew at the time, I would have still gone. Um, from knowing more about the webcam stuff, and he told me about. So once I was there, he told me about the webcam stuff. What did he not, tell not, you? Not in detail. Okay, I can't remember okay, like okay. that well. But it, it was something like women who want to do webcam stuff, like they already want to do it. Mm -hmm. I help them make way more money, mm -hmm. and I take a percentage. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, I didn't. I don't think you know. I wasn't like that. Seems like a wonderful business model. But I was like, if there are women who are already doing it and now they're making more money, I guess it doesn't seem, you know, it is what it is, mm -hmm. kind of. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know that until I got there. And then he he wanted to set up subscription platforms um, and said they could be very valuable. And, and we'd already been kind of looking into that because you'd had some issues with social media. I was worried you were going to get banned on sites. And so... I was already thinking it would be good to set that up with a subscription Well, platform. Gmail canceled me at one point. Yeah, I know. That about that time. Yeah, it was ridiculous. So mm -hmm. it was like it would be good to learn how to do the subscription platform. Um, anyway, that so I kind of went there to like scope things out. And it was a very interesting experience, and they were nice to me. That's like the story. Yeah, well, the it, I hesitate to talk about Andrew Tate because I don't know that much about him, you know. But I'll, I'll tell you what I know and what I think, and people can take it for what it's worth. I mean, the first question is, why is he so popular? And the answer is, well, if you have to choose between being depressed and anxious and laying downstairs and covering yourself with Cheeto dust and looking at pornography and being timid and never going out, or, you know, listening to someone like Andrew Tate who says, like, get the hell out there and take the world, like... That's better. That's the shadow, right, speaking in some ways, right? Like if you're naive and timid and anxious and intimidated and useless and resentful, there's going to be a bit of a monster that needs to call to you to say, you know, gird up your loins and get the hell out there in the world. And so it's better to be, it's better to be a monster than a rabbit in some ways, right? Or at least there's some utility in the more monstrous predatory path that isn't there in the pathetic rabbit path. And that's partly because if you are a pathetic rabbit, you're going to become a predator anyways. You're just going to become a dark backdoor, backbiting, gossip mongering, resentful monster. Society is so, also pushing that on men. In yes, constantly. Like, well, and I knew, look, I knew, I knew, and I warned people repeatedly that if the culture kept 
emasculating men that men who said, to hell with that, I'd rather be a monster, would become extremely popular. Now, Andrew Tate is emblematic of that in many ways, because the first thing you've got to say about him is that he's genuinely tough, right? So that's not a front. That's not a front. He's a fighter. And, and you can't take the courageous element of being a fighter away from someone who will actually step in the ring, right? And so now, and, and then you said Tate's intelligent, and what that means as well is that some of the things he says are going to be of value. Now, why he says those, that's a whole different issue. The, the thing that disturbs me is that, like, I'm not very fond of the whole online porn thing in any way. And I don't think that it's okay for young women to monetize their sexual attractiveness online. I think that leads to a very dark place for them, even if they're successful. No. Because becoming it successful your, it by... your soul. Yeah, by, you don't become successful by exploiting yourself. And you might think, well, I can exploit myself. It's like... You can't treat yourself like a psychopath would treat you and get away with it even if the psychopath that's doing that is yourself. That doesn't work. That's why psychopaths aren't very successful, because they exploit themselves just like other people. And so I don't like the whole online porn thing. And then I don't now, my understanding, and, and I've watched him apparently agree to this characterization online, you know, it's hard to get a... I'm not trying to be the jury here because I haven't heard the whole damn story, but from what I've watched is he would enter into relationships with women and tilt them in the direction of generating like an OnlyFans following and monetize that and then take a percentage. And there isn't anything about that that I think is acceptable. You know, and you could say, well, you know, women are the captains of their own soul, and if they want to monetize their own attractiveness, then what the hell, why not do it? And if they're going to do it anyways, you know, I can help them, and if I help them, why not take a piece of the action? And the answer is, to me, the answer to that is, well, how about because it's ignoble and wrong? Now, you could, you could counter, and you could say, well, you're just too useless and timid to dare to do that, right? And, and I'd say, you know... Point taken. You know, Nietzsche had pointed this out back in the 1850s. He said, most morality is cowardice in the guise of morality. It's not like, it's not like I'm good. It's just that I'm afraid to do that. And Tate would say, well, if you're just not doing something because you're a coward, that doesn't mean you're good. And whereas I'm forthright and tough, and look at me, I climb into the ring, and, you know, I can entice women into, you know, sex work online and take a cut, and why the hell shouldn't I? And I think that if you're a timid and reprehensible, resentful, bottom-dwelling male, that that's going to look like an attractive alternative. But, but it's not the highest form of human behavior, right? It's not, it's not acceptable. Like, I think pimps of any sort are, I truly believe they're amongst the most contemptible of people. I think there's nothing in, you know, the pimp is, I've got all these hoes and look at me like, you know, king of these women. And it's like, no, you are the ultimate in pathetic, parasitic predators. There's nothing about that that's heroic. It's just pathetic. Now, you might say, if you're that type, well, at least I'm not as contemptible as the cowards who hide behind me. It's like, fair enough. You know, there's, there's ranks of order even in hell. And there's lower and higher demons, you know. And the person who would like to do something terrible but is too cowardly to do it, that's a pretty damn low form of demon. 
But that doesn't mean that the person who would like to do something and is courageous enough to do it, even though it's bad, isn't also a demon. And so, you know, I think fundamentally that Tate serves his, his immediate self in this, like, impulsive, gratifying manner. And I think that goes along with his, you know, look at me, I'm in a Bugatti. It's like, you know, fair enough, man, in some way. Do you think what he's been telling men more on the, you know, take responsibility for your life and, and do things, mm -hmm. if that, I mean, it's hard to, I suppose, separate it from well, everything else. Well, in actual else. life, people are complex. No villain is simple. No, no villain is simple, you know, and, and, and in, in great literature, the great villain is a sympathetic figure. You're kind of on board for 75% of it. And not only that, you, you might also say, well, if I was in that position, I might do the same thing. Like, it's only a cartoon villain who's 100% evil, right? And so even when you meet someone who's dark and psychopathic to the core, you'll find, and I've had clients who were like, I had one client who had like five restraining orders out against him. He was actually quite comical. He's quite a young guy, small guy, kind of slight, extremely intense. You know, he had that kind of human shark thing going. And he was actually, he was quite the horrible, riotous blast to work with because he was, he was a very interesting monster. And he would, five restraining orders is a lot. Yep. And restraining orders don't work on the sort of people who need restraining orders. So don't be ever thinking a restraining order is going to help you. Not if a real monster's got you in his sights. And he, he had a paranoid end to him. And what that meant was if he was ever insulted by you, he would blow the insult up and it would put enmity between the two of you. So like talking to him was quite the nightmare because you didn't get to make a mistake. And he was hypervigilant because he was paranoid. So he's just watching you like a bloody hawk for every deviation from honesty. And like, I never lied to him. And if I thought he was doing something stupid and terrible, I just told him that I, looks to me like that's pretty stupid and terrible. Like there was no, I wasn't playing with him and I wasn't trying to impress him. And I talked to him for a long time, but he would, uh, he would, <laughs> I remember he told me one time about going into a bank you know, and he met one of those tellers that, you know, you go into an institution sometime, you meet somebody with bureaucratic personality disorder, and they decide that the good thing to do that day is to just screw up your life with yeah, some yeah, idiot yeah, complication yeah. just because they can. It's my job. Right, right. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, I have to do this. And they're, they're playing their little power game because they're like Dostoevsky's underground man, and they're resentful to the core. And so they're going to just screw around with you. Well, now and then someone would do that with him. And he'd say... I'm going to be your worst nightmare. <laughs> and then what he meant was, I'm now going to commit a sizable proportion of my life and all my intellectual prowess to making you as miserable as I can possibly imagine. And then he would go do that. You know, and there was actually... Ooh. This is in, yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Ooh, well, maybe right. it shouldn't be a bureaucratic nightmare. Well, right, right. Well, and then see that, well, and that was the weirdly admirable part, right? It's like... You know, because typically what would happen in a situation like that is you'd go into the bank and you'd just swallow it. And then yeah. you'd go out and, you know, go home and kick your dog and bitch at your wife because you didn't tell the bureaucrat to, you know, watch the hell out or something terrible is going to happen. Well, he was way on the other end of the distribution. It's like, don't muck with me. And he meant, he was an honor code guy. It's like, don't muck with me. And what he meant was, don't muck with me. Now, and he meant it, and there was something admirable about that, you know, even though he was a very dangerous person and he had taken it way too far. But this is what I mean by complexity of the villain. It's like, 
Well, <laughs> he had the courage of his convictions, let's put it that way. You know, and so when you see someone like Andrew Tate, well, first of all, if you have any sense, you think this is a guy that's actually crawled in the ring. And the second thing you think is, well, just because his moral compass is warped and, and warped in a serious way on the like electronic pimp front, and like I think in a fatal way, personally, that's the highest likelihood, because I don't think you can do that without it permeating everything. That doesn't mean that, you know, he's a two-dimensional villain, you know, or that there aren't things about him that are complex and interesting and potentially even admirable, you know. People are complicated, and, and even the villainous types are complicated, and it isn't surprising to me at all that he's an attractive figure, given the current, you know, war against masculinity. He's exactly the He's 100% predictable. He's exactly what you'd expect. Would, so, would you talk to him? You know, I pretty much talk to anybody. Oh. I thought about, you know, whether or not that would be a good idea. For me, you know, generally, one of my primary driving forces is just curiosity. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I am a clinician. You know, I like talking to... I've talked to lots of... I've talked to lots of very strange people. You know, lots of them. And it's very interesting to do that because you're really wandering into no man's land. And that's perilous and ridiculously, crazily interesting. That's what I loved about part of what I loved about being a clinician. Like, almost everybody is interesting enough to be a Dostoevsky character if you start listening to them. And so just ordinary people, if you listen to them, they're ridiculously weird and interesting. And then you find someone truly weird and interesting and listening to them, listen to them, it's like you can hardly stand it. Carl Rogers talked about this, you know, he said people won't listen because they're too terrified of changing. Because, you know, if you listen to someone, they tell you how weird they are. You share in that self-revelation. It's, it's too interesting. So, and I'm sure talking to Andrew Tate would be too interesting. So... Okay, we should wrap up because you've got to run. But just really quick, um, you, you set up a donation site for your friend Charles. And oh, I know right. people have been asking, like, what happened with that? How's he doing? Is everything okay? Mm. So just, like, two minutes on that and we'll call it quits. Yeah, yeah. Well, Charles, Charles is this native Canadian carver. And uh, I've had a relationship with him for about 15 years. And we got inducted into his family six years ago, something like that. that. Was, was cool. was very cool. And he helped me design the third floor of my house. And it's full of all his carvings, which is a magical place. It's really a magical place. And, uh, you know, I've developed a relationship with him. And Charles has had a real rough life because he, he was ground through the like sadistic residential school nightmare in Canada. And not all the residential schools were run by pedophilic sadists, but his was. Yeah. And so, and uh, with, with the effect on him that you might imagine if you had a very dark imagination indeed. And, uh, well, anyways, you know, I bought art from him and, and helped him with his artistic career. And, and, and that's been of great utility to me as well. But last year, six months ago, seven months ago, his wife died and he has little kids. And then his house and his shop burned down like the same month, right? And so awful. Oh, it was awful. It was awful. And so, you know, he was left bereft in, in two different dimensions. And so I put together this fundraiser and, and we raised a fair bit of money. I think about $190,000. Is that about right? I think about a hundred. I could be wrong. 
think it was less. Okay, but okay, some, something okay. like that. Well, and then I thought, well, you know, we, we're looking for investment places generally anyways, and so what we ended up doing was buying a house, a property for him on Vancouver Island, um, back in a neighborhood that he was familiar with, and it's a beautiful place. It's like this, you know, acreage, and it's, it's a beautiful old wood house, and it's got a shop outside where he can carve, and um, his kids are there now with him, and I'm going to see him tomorrow, probably. Oh, and, okay. Yeah, or sometime yeah, this yeah, week, because yeah. I'm going to Vancouver Island, and, and he sent me some pictures recently. He started to carve again, and, you know, he's recovering from the loss of his Great. wife, and his kids seem really happy there, and... It's a beautiful, unbelievably beautiful property, yeah, yeah, sort of is. nestled in the mountains. And can can like, people buy his masks online? CharlesJoseph.ca. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll link that. Yeah, they're I very think good. A, yeah, he's a great artist, a real visionary, a very strange person because he was trained in this ancient West Coast Native tradition. They had an unbroken cultural lineage of at least it's more than fifteen thousand years. That's about when they probably got down to the West Coast. But it was an unbroken tradition stretching from way before that. And so I've also learned a fair bit on the anthropological front about his, the mythology of his people and their artistic tradition and how that makes itself manifest in him. Like, he dreams his carving characters. He dreams in the genre that he carves. And he can talk to his great-grandparents in his dreams about the carving problems that he has. And like, he doesn't That's talk so about cool. this generally, you know, because he says, I talk about this and everybody thinks he's crazy. Charles is not crazy. Yeah, yeah. Charles is one deep character, man. You've watched him dance. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 When, yeah. when we had that um, event where we got inducted, I don't, I don't want to say it wrong. Yeah. It, um, there was this event. It was wild. Mm -hmm. It was like you could feel things in there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He really turns into whatever he dances. Yeah. Like it's fully grips him fully, you know, and and he's gripped fully when he's carving too, and. It's really been great to have these. I, like I've always loved the West Coast Canadian uh, native art ever since I was a little kid. And so he's he bought a 38 foot cedar pole that he's going to make for us, hey, for our house up our oh, cottage. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. And so it's going to have a, a two serpents at the base, and then two women, negative and positive, and then two men, and then a hero figure wow. at the top. Yeah. So a real oh, shamanic really totem cool. pole. Yeah, we've been working on the design for that. So. Anyways, he said he's thrilled to be there. He seems, he got away, the, 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 the reserve he was on was full of trouble. There were people there that were bothering him to death, including like, you know, demented social workers, and he's just pulled himself away from that. And so I'm hoping he'll be set now so that he can just devote himself to carving. And, you know, it's a complicated relationship because he has a complicated life. Uh, um, you know, I mean, um, his community in general, like most of the native communities in North America, is pretty damn devastated, and there's people around him dying all the time of one problem or another. Like, his life is, in some ways, a never-ending sequence of tragic catastrophes and complexities, and, you know, it's, it's complex being involved in that, but, but I, I really like Charles. He's a great guy, and, and I don't mean in the, isn't he nice, he makes a good friend. I mean, Charles is a great person. He's really deep and uncanny in many ways. And so, because you don't go what he went through what he went through and recover without having things moved around profoundly in the depths. And he's really a good artist. He's a real visionary. And so he's quite the strange person to be around. And so, you know, it's, it's an adventure being in association with him. But it has been a real interesting adventure. Going to that potlatch was, you know, like wow. how likely is that? Zero, yeah. right? It's zero likely. So, you know, we went to this 
when, I, when we got inducted into his family, we went to this ceremony that lasted, what, 12 hours in this Indian big house. In, it was a number of days. Yeah, well, yeah, it went over, that's right, it went over a couple of days, Three that's days, right, yeah. right, continual dancing and masks, and he made like 50 or 60 masks for that festival, I bought all those masks, so I have a complete potlatch collection, which is also very cool, and, you know, it was a real trip, it was something I never thought would happen, it was a trip, yeah. man, yeah. Okay, on that note. All right. Thank you very much for coming on, thanks for the opportunity with Peterson Academy. Hey, this well, thanks for running with the football there, kiddo, and it'll be fun to see how it all turns out. It's so far, you know, everybody who's been involved has said very positive things, and I've seen, you know, a fair bit of the edited footage. Which is great. Yeah, Everybody yeah. who's working so far is great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, that's a good a thing to team. know, too. You know, if you're going to set up a business, if you're watching and listening, you want to set up a business, you find people who... Are great. Who are great. That's what you're looking for. You want, you don't want, well, their competence. Like, no. No, if you want to stay involved in what you're doing and you want to push it all the way, you're looking for 100% all in, on board, great. And you're looking for people, if a problem emerges, hopefully the problems don't emerge because they solve them before they emerge, but if they do emerge, they deal with them, they put it right, and then they don't have the same problem again. And you have to be pretty damn separate the wheat from the chaff rough if you're going to run an enterprise and make it work. And you've, be, you've got very good at that, you know, in, in making sure that the people who are on board are 100% on board and firing on all cylinders. And then it's a blast to do something. And then you can also give people the space for their own adventure because if you hire really competent people and they share the vision, you can give them a piece and say, you know, have at her, man, this is your territory. And that's also extremely fun and enables you to do all sorts of other things. This is why you shouldn't micromanage. It's like, you wanna spend your life micromanaging or you wanna distribute responsibility so that people can have their own adventure. Well, then you'll be jealous of that if you're an idiot. But if you're not, if they have their responsibility and their piece of the pie, well, then you can go do something else. Yeah. Right, and that's a big deal. You know, when I made the business arrangements with you and Julian, you know, my tack was, I want to make you a deal that you're so thrilled with that I never have to worry about whether our interests are aligned because it's just obvious, you know, because you got what you needed, not what you wanted or to get the upper hand, but, you know, the negotiation was honest. What do you need so you're thrilled to be doing this? You want to make this arrangement you bloody well want to make in your marriage too. It's like, what do I have to do to set up this marriage so that you're thrilled to be in it? Yeah, I think it's also fun because I get to work with Jordan on everything. Yeah, and why he's is that been, fun? He's been key. He's very smart. Yeah. He's good at firing people. He's good at identifying problems and fixing them. He's very competent. So he can just take on, like he knows the business from the ground up too. He's the one who helped find people to film and like structured that entire thing. He's more familiar with tech on that side than I am. And he has a OCD eye for detail as well. Mm -hmm. As if how we do needed balance, more, as if we needed you, more. How do you balance your, your personal relationship with your business relationship? Um, well, we're pretty good at communicating and I'm pretty, we're both extremely disagreeable. He's extremely disagreeable. I'm, at least I've got some compassion on my end. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I'm also old enough that I don't, I'm not going to not say things that bother me. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing hidden. And then how do we manage it? 
our goals are aligned, I think, is how we manage yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we've got, like, sometimes we bicker a little bit about certain decisions, but not very often because our goals well, there, are there aligned. Also isn't that, sometimes I'm wrong. Well, so there isn't that much that. difference often. If the bickering is in good faith, there isn't much difference in bickering, yeah, yeah, between exactly. bickering and thinking. It's like if you're thinking, you're bickering with yourself. Right? It's like, well, it could be this or it could be that. It's like, well, you don't know, which is why you do the thinking. And, you know, the, the stress that occurs between couples often, at least if it's good faith, a fair bit of that is, well, it's a complicated problem and there's going to be a couple of different viewpoints. So, of course, you have to have it out. Yeah. And that's unpleasant in the moment. But this is something I think we did fairly effectively in our family. It's like we didn't let problems hide under the carpet. It was like, that's bring that sucker out sure. and we'll have a scrap about it right now. And that's, you know, that's stressful because you have the damn fights, but then, then at least in principle, they're over. Yeah. So we do that, but it's probably less dramatic than it was in our family. We're a bit of a dramatic family. Mm. Okay. Okay. We have to end this. Thank okay. you very much for coming on. All right. Well, good luck with the revitalization of your podcast. Thank on you. On to the second million subscribers. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Yeah. If you guys would like to be notified of the launch of Peterson Academy, you can go to petersonacademy.com and sign up there, and I'll be putting a link to everything we talked about, including petersonacademy.com, in the description. Thanks for watching.